changes that historians will mark the end of one era and mark the beginning of another. T-E-T-C. The end times continue. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the end times continue recording on this, the 13th of November. Holy shit. Uh, <laughs> uh, I am Dino and you are Naya Mace and uh, we have a very special guest with us um, before we get to anything Hunter uh, go ahead and introduce yourself hello I'm Hunter I am on Twitter as Eminent Anarchy I've run a Substack, my own Substack on also Eminent Anarchy and I'm excited to be here with you guys awesome we're so happy to have you uh, welcome 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 um uh, you asked right before you asked right before I fired off the intro whether or not the tub situation was fixed. Yes, and it was a pain <laughs> in the ass. They took like a week to actually come through here and caulk up the cracks and fix the upstairs. It's a mess, absolute mess, but it is fixed, and the roof will not collapse. So there's good news. Yeah, it will not collapse yet. Mm. Yes, yet, yet. These buildings are so fucking old. I'm surprised it hasn't, frankly. <laughs> no, I feel you. That my my brother was living in. York in the Lower East Side, and his apartment was probably like 50, 60, 70 years old. And he made the report because it had something going on with you. It had a leak in the roof. Well, there was no one above him. And six months, six months it took before finally someone showed up. And apparently he was in one of the buildings owned by Jared Kushner's family. Oh, Oh my God. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Right. (laughs) Wow. Um, holy shit. Okay. How have things been with you guys? Either one. Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Can't complain too much. I can't complain either. I've been just kind of putzing around, reading the news, hanging mm-hmm. out. It's I, I, I'm going through my second fall in Los Angeles, California, and mm-hmm. it's I, I, I'm really mad at myself. Because, you know, everyone on Twitter or online is used to those California assholes who are always like, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, 60 degrees and it's cold. (laughs) And now two years into my internment into Los Angeles, I'm out here, it's hit 60 and I'm like, wow, I need a coat. (laughs) I'm one of the assholes now. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's finally gotten in Houston. It's finally gotten to where the, the, it, Temperature is actually reasonable. We're in like the high 70s now, most of the time, mid 70s. And the, uh, I don't have to run my AC all the time, which means my electric bill might actually be affordable. Fucking insane. God bless you. (laughs) I have to, I have to know. Okay. That heat. Is it, is it a dry heat in Houston or are we talking about a a moist heat? No, no, it's the it's the Gulf Coast, man. This is you're you're swimming back and forth from the car most of the time. Oh, so you don't even have to really drink water out there. You just kind of inhale it, and you're good, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like uh, uh, I oh, what's the character's name from uh, from uh, Metal Gear Solid Five? What's her name? She wears a bikini, and everybody got mad about it, but he but she breathes through her skin, so it's not a big deal, and everybody was angry for no reason. Uh, shit, now I can't remember it. Anyway, yeah, it's like her. <laughs> there we go. There you go, just like breathing by osmosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's bad. Um, okay, so, Jesus, what did you want to do first? 
Hmm, that's a good question. I, I mean, I guess we can just like uh, get right into it, really. Uh, I, I think so. Wrote, yeah. So Hunter, you wrote um, two really, really great Substack articles, and uh, whichever one you really want to start with first, or however you want to open this up first, I think that's uh, up to you. However, you feel like you want to do it, but um, we're going to be talking about some uh, societal topics, let's say, and I yes. think they're very, very interesting things that most people just don't usually consider um, when they think of like social organization. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and just uh, just for a little bit of sort of this conversation i'm gonna be doing a couple of dumb guy questions throughout the whole thing because there are some terms that that you use that i think need some context around them and stuff like that but whichever one you want to start with go for it oh yeah that sounds good to me um and please ask me any questions because i probably have thought that question and haven't answered it mm -hmm. to myself so it'd be a great time to catch me on that <laughs> um yeah, so the two essays that I got on, on my Substack, uh, the first one is called Theory of the Interagnum, and then the second one is a toolbox of concepts. Um, it's called lim uh, uh, Liminality, sp specifically focusing on the concept of liminality. And so I guess like the best way to look at these two essays is to kind of look back at my thought process when it, uh, right at the start of the pandemic, the, during the spring, of, I guess it would be 2020, was it 2020, 2020 yeah. 2019? Yeah. yeah, 2020. And I was looking at trying to write some essays because for the last, yeah, you know, I've been out of college for a while. And when I was in college, for the first couple of years, I was a Marxist. Now, I've been across the whole political spectrum from libertarian <laughs> to objectivist in high school. I met Ron Paul. I was part of the Tea Party in high school. And when I got to college, I ended up becoming, um, I moved to the left joined a Trotskyist organization for like two years, was chairman of the college group. And then I was like, wait, you I'm an all the hats. Can't... <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. I, I was joking for a while that I was like everything but a normie dem for the longest time. And now yeah. I'm trying to look at, now I've been hanging out with these neoliberals. I'm like, oh no, oh yeah. no. <laughs> um, but you know what I, you know, I left after I left Marxism. I really moved into anarchism. And I was specifically mm -hmm. Proudhon, who I ended up writing my thesis for my econ degree because I oh, graduated cool. with econ. In I graduated from college with a degree in economics. I lucked out. It was very um, non math based econ degree, so I didn't have to learn calculus. Thank God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think that's yeah. a lot of what attracts people to like Austrian type economics is that oh yeah, I don't like math. These guys <laughs> really don't focus on math. This is great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no. And and so in high school, I you know when I first met Ron Paul, he had been like, you need to read Murray Rothbard. And I'd heard about <laughs> him. I'd heard about Paul because I'd been in Ayn Rand, and then I learned about mm -hmm. Murray Rothbard, and then I got into von Mises and you know age 16 17 i'm trying to read human action <laughs> or socialism you know uh, by mises yeah. and i'm like okay so but you know after all the after getting my degree i was uh my thesis had been on proudhon's economics and looking at how mm -hmm. he had worked how john Maynard keynes had a similar kind of social philosophy how there were similar routes they were going to and i leave college and you know i'm like i'm not really looking to do anything like scholarly Mm -hmm. But I started I'm working in restaurants, working in other jobs. And I decided, okay, let, let me, let me, what, what am I interested in? And so when it comes down to it, you know, I'm an anarchist. And one yeah. thing that I think doesn't really get talked about a lot, or, you know, there's not been a really solid move for it is, you know, how do we get to anarchy? 
Mm-hmm. You know, how do we get to anarchism, to, you know, the, the state of anarchism? And I was really interested in that because, you know, with Marxism, that's a very clearly defined route, or at least, you know, they, they try to make it look like that. Lenin, right. you know, according to Lenin, you get the workers, you develop the workers' party, the workers' party kind of becomes its own entity above the unions and syndicalist movements and the workers mm-hmm. party over time pushes the capitalist over and over and over until right. finally the capitalist can't capitulate anymore and a revolution happens that clears away the capitalist system and you've now got your base form of socialism right right it's so, the right. there's a defined sort of there's a defined set of steps to get to uh we get to socialism this way and we call it the revolution, and these are this is how you do it. Uh, we we don't have that. Like market anarchists don't have that. <laughs> I no, guess, not at all. Not uh, at yeah, all. I guess know? maybe the closest we get is agorism, but it's like, eh. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, anarcho-communism is the same way. There, I mean, mm-hmm. anarcho-communism. It's really hard to tell. You, you when you read about the conquest of bread. Well, you know, you still. Kropotkin doesn't seem to be able to stretch strike out a position that isn't revolutionary and the issue with the revolution is that we can just go to basic history and we can say okay well you know no matter how many no matter the revolution no matter the power that you you know you hope for it to bring about anarchist society the the revolutions are always so chaotic and so susceptible to opportunism that that's how you know there's they they even looked at the russian revolution if you looked at the people the russian that were active in the revolution they were to the left of lenin they were left to the bolsheviks but the bolsheviks um you know they they themselves were able to with a lot of german money were able to you know (laughs) kind of centralize the the opposition of the czar of the of the temporary government and that's how they came to power. And so, you know, when it comes down to revolution, it just seems, you know, I've kind of become more and more skeptical of that being like a route to actually get to anarchism. Not saying that you won't have like maybe some moment of military right. fighting the last vestiges of the state, but it just doesn't seem like a route that, you know, will protect us from fascist opportunism or, you know, right. commun- or the Soviet opportunism. Yeah, yeah, there's a, the I mean, it's tr- it's kind of, bullshit uh uh referencing at this point but it's true that chaos is a ladder right like that people will take Mm -hmm. advantage of that and and those are the people who end up coming out on top in all these situations like you described the bolsheviks every every revolution is rolling a 20-sided die but 19 of the sides are like uh, charismatic sociopaths (laughs) exactly yeah Uh, no exactly So, you know, maybe you get lucky and strike out uh, once in a while on a really good roll, but uh, most of the time it ends horribly. Incredibly so. And, you know, it's it's and it's not to say, you, I, you know, as an, as an anarchist, I think what I've come to more recently, at least, is saying that like the, the there's always a right revolution. But it's, you know, like people have the right to overthrow right. the hierarchy yes. that is the government. There's a certain yep. there's fundamentally an ethical right to that. It's a matter of like utilitarian wise. Will yeah. this actually get us farther, or are we going to end up with, you know, a Maoist government? Are we going to end right. up with a Frank- Francoist government? Are we going to end up with some, you know, what, what most of history, other than like the United States, and even that's kind of, you know, hit and miss, uh, you know, situations that are less optimal. So mm-hmm. part of me then was, you know, look, trying to, okay, well, in 
given these situations, given this kind of outright issue of Marxism, and a lot of left, the left uses Marxism as its kind of roadmap to what it wants to get. I was like, well, I guess maybe like we need to think about society. What's how do we look at society without like going to the economic framework like Marx does, right? Because mm -hmm. especially on the left, in terms of left anarchism, Marx is the fundamental person that the ANCOMs are using. A lot of your council communists. Yeah. It, it, he's just his work is too too large. And you know, even I even through I, osmosis, I find like mm. even if they don't directly reference him, a lot of their ideas are steeped in sort of that foundation. Oh yeah, oh yeah, or they're or they're reacting specifically to it. Uh -huh. So you know, my thought process was like, okay, let's let me try, and this was you know the start of the of the pandemic. I was like, let me try and think about you know what has been going on, and I remember like about a year into Trump's presidency. I I had this notion of the term like the an interregnum. You know, it's when they most commonly think of like with England when like there wasn't an actual king. For a certain amount of time they call it the anarchy they call it you know mm -hmm. the interregnum when between rulers my thought process well you know we don't have in most in modern society we don't actually have a kind of you know a central authority anymore but at the same time there is a certain sin which you know if you went to most u.s citizens if you were even when we're talking about like 2006 2007 even if they were opposed to a lot of you know what was going on in policy be it the war in Iraq or Afghanistan, you there was a sense that the federal government, down to the state government, down to the local the local governments, and you know, throughout the throughout capitalism, there was a sense that there was order, right? That there mm -hmm. was that there was a there was agreed upon consensus norms of how things worked. And if mm -hmm. you wanted to move forward, you know, even if you were someone who was black or who, who a minority of, of some rate being gay, there's a sense that these are the route, this is the route you have to proceed to succeed, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, after, you know, I was, I was trying to think, you know, by the time Trump, it felt like in a lot of ways that, you know, we had a president, but the president feels like it doesn't feel like that actually has the authority or like, you know, setting the emotes operandi. We had, right. we have states that especially during the Obama years, states went in a hundred different directions. Uh, be it Arizona, you know, trying to pull a U-turn on immigration, be it, you know, Texas going right or mm -hmm. other issues like that. And so my thought process was like, okay, well, maybe instead of looking at the economic, maybe instead of, you know, focusing on the economic like Marx did, where he says, you know, there's a certain process by which the economy is moving that eventually we will get to communism. Right. The idea is that eventually these contradictions in capitalism will lead to communism. The rate of profit in Marx's view would eventually run down to zero. Right. And my thought was, OK, well, let's instead of looking at that, let's look at crisis itself or or the idea that you that disorder itself coming up, coming about in what is, you know, a capitalist system with a state that's, you know, at the same time trying to monitor and to consolidate and keep things in order, even when capitalism kind of runs ahead of itself. And that's where I came up with at least like the general idea of the interregnum. Because it seemed like if we look back in the 60s and 70s, there were similar, there are certain patterns uh, that if you looked at, you know, Obama and JFK, both were coming mm -hmm. in, both kind of succeed at these moments when um, technology, especially communicative technology, yes. were coming into vogue in a brand new way. 
JFK, you know, everyone talks about how on radio, Nixon sounded like you beat G JFK and they're, yep. and they're back and forth. But it was when television came on that Nixon was destroyed because Nixon was yes. very nervous. He's sweating. Yeah. You've got JFK that's looking like this, you know, young buck. Like, don't you, you know, he'd be the pinup man for every you know, <laughs> housewife of the 1950s. Right. Have you, to your point, and, and not to interrupt, but to your point, because I wanted no. to touch on this, on this point that you made in this piece, when you bring that up, mm -hmm. did you listen to Raise the Dead, uh, Justin Robert Young's Raise the Dead, the first season? No, what's that? I recommend it, because what it does is it takes this exact idea that you're talking about, and it expands on it into a, 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 uh, it draws that parallel that you're drawing, but between Kennedy and Trump and the use of technology, the way the Kennedy campaign did it, like, for example, mm -hmm. the first campaign with a VCR, cutting press packages, sending them to local press affiliates, campaigning that way, brand and mm -hmm. using this brand new technology and the Trump campaign basically just running on social media. The the mm -hmm. in, in a way that hasn't been done in the past. You you mentioned the Obama sort of uh, the 2008 and 2012, and those those are where it started. But the first uh, campaign that, that I know of that really took advantage of social media in a very very big way was Trump. And that that first season of Raise the Dead. If you're interested in in going deeper into that, that first season of Raise the Dead is fascinating for just that reason. Um, because it really digs in on how has politics changed, how has campaigning changed as a result of technology, and how does uh, you know the the early bird end up taking advantage of that? It's a it's very yeah, that, very that cool. cool. And I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to, well I wanted to ask if you'd listen to it because you had brought up so many similar points that are mentioned in in that in that uh, series. No, I've not actually. And what was so I'm writing the note down. So Raise the Dead, who is it by? It's from Justin Robert Young. Justin Robert Young. Okay, I'll have to check that out. No, I so a lot of this I wrote back in um the essay that you that you read that when you look at the interregnum essay, ninety five percent of that essay was written in twenty twenty. Yeah, I noticed when you mentioned July. the when you mentioned the COVID stuff that had kind of just started spinning up at one point in the middle of it, and I was like, Oh shit, this is this is thoughts as they happen. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it varies that way. Cause you know, it, it was, I was at home by myself, you know, I had just moved into an apartment all excited to like be living in the town of the city that I moved to. And of course I got, I signed the lease and that is like two, two weeks later is when everything shut down, shuts oh, down and man. I'm, <sighs> and I'm having to stay at work from home from then on. So a lot of the, we know a lot of that original thought process and where this project kind of erupted from was being, and then it was me and friend Bird. We were talking back and forth just because you know, I had so much time, and he was he was curious about what I was talking about, and then he gave me some ideas, and so I ran away with those ideas, ran with his own ideas. So, <laughs> but I'll have to check that out. I'm very curious about that because the person I know that when it comes when you're talking about communicative and revolutions i know McLuhan is someone that every every person would think to look at first and i've not read him yet either i know that that's someone that like a lot of people would also say is important in analyzing with his global village and whatnot but i've just not gone around to him i've actually looked at more other uh bizarre figures half the time 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. The process of looking at because I was I, I was really curious about um public um uh I'm blanking the name, but um I'll turn back to it. But it, in terms of publicity, public relations. Uh, relations, yes. The the guy who coined the term. He became someone that I still is in the periphery of my research because he ended up like influencing so much of the 20th century. It's crazy. Is that the same um, guy who was are we thinking of the same guy, the guy who was the ad man who basically yes, uh, who basically won? Uh yeah, in the lead up to uh, in in the interwar period. He he or if we're thinking of the same guy, that dude is a master manipulator. Like he's oh, he's no, he... incredible. No, you know what the thing that's crazy, and there's this there's a BBC direct there's a BBC um documentary done. If you ever have the time, it's it's hard to find. It's online and you can look it up on YouTube. It's called um The Century of the Self. And that guy, let me pull him his name up because I know that this guy it'll be somewhere early on um edward bernays Ber- yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah you study him so, but- if you go to journalism school surprise surprise <laughs> yes. that's that's like yeah, yeah yeah no I, he was he was the subject of one of my earliest classes one of my earliest seminar classes in in uh, journalism school or not the subject but one of the subjects uh, for a number of weeks during that during that course interesting so yeah you know his uncle was right i do not his uncle from over in Austria and Germany was actually Sigmund Freud. A lot of his influence, Edward Bernays, is because he was in consistent contact with Sigmund Freud. And then when it came down to some of the early, you know, what, because he started out in the propaganda machine of World War I. He's working under, World, under Woodrow Wilson. And he left when he left after well after the war. He left, that's when he coins public relations. But one of his first campaigns is the whole. Um, I don't know if you've heard about it, but the, but the women smoking the cigarettes. Yes. 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 Yep, yep, yep. That's the campaign that we studied. Yeah. Yeah, and the and he got the idea because his you know his uncle Sigmund Freud the torches something is it torches liberty torches freedom torches something yes. like that he called cigarettes yeah. yeah yes he got the idea. Because he went over to a psychoanalyst in New York who said, okay, if you want women to smoke cigarettes, well, you got to make it make them think that it's going to be some way for them to like edge into masculinity. So make them think it's like a little penis. It's a crazy idea, right? You know, it's, 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 it's Freudian <laughs> yeah. craziness. But this is still someone who was influencing and had a very strong influence in like social choices and how certain tastes were being developed between Mm -hmm. the 20s and i think he dies in like the 80s maybe even later yeah um but he's you know influential the whole time but he was yeah he was he was the nephew of sigmund freud and was that makes perfect sense that makes perfect sense yeah absolutely and hooking into the women women's lib movement like that was just a stroke of genius master manipulator absolute master manipulator he is horrifying, <laughs> fascinating, and horrifying as a historical figure. <laughs> oh no, one hundred percent. I've got a couple of his books that I still haven't gotten through because I. But I. But it's one of those things where I was like, I'm, I'm curious, right? Because he, he was effective, if nothing else. And I, and I have a oh, certain yeah. appreciation, even when you're an asshole. I have a certain appreci- appreciation for when you're effective. Oh, means, it's, right, it's you're a... tapping into something, even if it's not a good thing. Oh, it's, <laughs> like, it's propaganda's most. It, it's, it's. <laughs> 
the the most illuminating thing you can do with regard to understanding propaganda is understanding that guy and what he did. Like that's yeah. like that the way that propaganda functions is it's entirely him. It, it, he built that machine. The the it's it's a it's a fascinating thing. And um, shit, I, I wish I could remember the movie that we watched about him in that class. I really wish I could remember. It was like a short thing, but I'm uh I'm. I'm sure it does not cover any fresh ground other than the documentary that you uh, mentioned. You said it was a BBC doc on YouTube. Yeah, it's from it's it's crazy. It's from 2002, but it's called The Century of the South. You can find it broken up in a number of like pieces on YouTube. I think because I don't think I don't think the BBC is like taking time to try and get it removed. But it's really educational. Um, it gave me a lot. I, I watched it in the last year, I think. So it was something that didn't really play into the essays when I was writing them. But, um, you know, it, it's something that I think is kind of like reinforced thoughts is that this is an ongoing process that is being developed in time because to kind of the development of e the focus group as a means for companies mm -hmm. to look into, you know, addressing individual right. taste and developing marketing strategies. And yes. also the, for politics to be working in that. And that's all something that comes in later after, you know, your 60s and 70s, which is kind of an innovation from, you know, the fo kind of the mass production that Bernays was involved in trying to get, you know, be it like Bacon or Jimmy, uh, Aunt Jemima, you know, the mass production mm -hmm. of the 50s and 60s that then kind of gives way to the more individualized focus production of the 80s and 90s which is also when you see the rise of the, the yuppie culture and this hyper individualistic perspective that developed really from the you know the the yippies the hippies and then mm -hmm. also kind of randian uh neoliberalism that was yes you you connect that right you connect that to that kind of reagan era sort of mentality that that came from the almost a, a almost a rebellion against the seventies in a way, but that yeah. that what you 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 linked that specifically to Reagan in your piece. Yes, and I think one of the things that I was what I've kind of looked at a little more because I was because it just had so I read I read a lot and I and I think I have ADAD ADHD or ADD because like I can mm -hmm. very rarely stick to the subject for too long reading wise. Oh, yeah. But I think I, I kind of came to if you look up, there's an essay called, I think, the the California, the California mentality or I'll pull it up later. But um, there was discussion at the early 90s about this combination of the Reagan neoliberalism uh, individualism there, but also like a combo of what you saw from a lot of the hippies and the leftist movements, of, um, the new the new left of the sixties and seventies. Mm -hmm. I've kind of been convinced. Ended up is what ended up you know coming combining together, which is why you have foods for the longest time, right? Who are these? And Steve Jobs too. Who are these like venture capitalists or these capitalists who are looking or developing, you know, individualism? And what they see is leftist individualism in a certain way, but making sure that it's commodifiable, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's something that, that's marketable and whatnot. And so that that's been something I've thought about since you know I originally wrote the essay, and I think it would be something to trace out a little bit later. But back to the essay because I feel like I'm showing the ADD pretty pretty seriously. No, it's fine. It happens all the time. Yeah, it's. 
so so yeah when it comes down to the interregnum um that essay just kind of breaks down the model that i that i came up which my thought was okay thought is this these two you know a lot of people want to think that you know you can have capitalism without the state you can have a state without capitalism for me when you look at capitalism social trend they're not you can't you can't remove them from each other you know the state that we have today the democratic uh, liberal democratic republican state whatever it is is largely defined by capitalism and the capitalism that you find within any certain country is largely defined by the state that it that it developed from too right england you have the you know england and us are different but there's certain similarities that we can look at yeah and so my my thought was okay let's look at that as the order right because basically since the end of mercantilism so like 1700s um capitalism then the order but instead of looking at that changing let's look at how the way in which it progresses the markets develop that the state develops its own tools of you know regulating and keeping social social um cohesion let's look at how those change so i change so you have the order which is just the states and capitalism in general and then you have the mode which is the sort modus operandi that is occurring to make sure that things move forward so i i kind of talk about after world war ii um you have the post-war mode and i and i put this between you know mm-hmm. 1948 19 and um the election of jfk as a period in which there were very clearly defined methods of approaching the government if you had issues minority issues or if you had questions of like how uh how you know the system how society should function so i showed in the essay you know there are a couple of ways in which you saw like the early lgbt groups they were very much about appeasement right they were very much about well we just want to be you know we're gay but we want to make sure that we look like ladies we look like we want to look at like the ladies that everyone thinks ladies should look like even though we might you know be a little fruiting mm-hmm. and that was kind of consistent if you look at some of the things um from the naacp at the same time on um there's this movement of appeasement and appeasement and appeasement by going through what are the recognized okay channels of contesting for rights of contesting for power of contesting for a voice in the system and then come around the time of jfk you know after jfk's life you start to see this start to break down back in the 60s um and at the same time, there's, there's, you know, JFK is really, in, you know, he's, he's doing a lot of things that were highly wanted at the time. You know, he's expanding the bureaucracy, trying to push for a new kind of sense of citizenship. You know, the, that's not what your country can do for you, but for you can do for your country. Right. right. And you see a lot of these developments come up. And my thought was, okay, after he dies is when we start seeing these like splinters I think it's because, you know, and part of things because this assassination is pretty significant at the time. I think mm-hmm. it's also because he was a fulfillment of that post-war period. He, ha- he, he pushed the envelope of what was possible within the modus operandi to its saturation point, to the tolerance that it could do it. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, then all other issues that would come af- up after 
were going to be too much for the general modus operandi to handle. So, you know, that's when after you see his death or it's around the same time. You know, the March in Washington. I mean, it's a little after the March in Washington. But that's when uh, Martin Luther King starts to look up north. He says, you know, we've we've done what we can in the South. Let's look up north. And when he does that is when he says, you know, I never, you know, we've I've been hosed down, you know, in the South all my life at this point for the matter. He's like, I've never seen the kind of anger or evil that I've seen up in the north since I've come up here. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, you know, there's there comes a point in which system had accepted certain movements of progress and yet it couldn't do it anymore. So in my view, this is where the post-war mode, which, you know, the modus operandi, starts to fall apart. It's when you start seeing the hippies rise up. It's when you start seeing um, the, not too long after, you know, you have the weather underground, you have the Black Panthers. Mm -hmm. A lot of these dissident groups all seem to rise, even the neo-Nazis. And, you know, it's a question of like, okay, so things had to that point. And then through these kind of pitched battles, that's when you get Nixon. And, you know, Dean, the thing when you talk about Nixon is, is I've kind of associated, and I'm not sure if this is right. God, this whole, all of this is very hypothetical. But, you know, I've, I've associated Nixon with Trump in the sense that Nixon and Trump, you know, one could say it's the whole Marxist uh, first as irony, then as farce. I forget what, the, what it is. But it's about, you know, you get Napoleon the first and then you get Napoleon's, you know, cousin or, or nephew who's a joke of the past. Right. Uh-huh. And in a certain way, I, I feel like that's a sense with Nixon and Trump. Not in so much that I think Trump is, you know, Nixon exactly. But I think that Trump was trying to channel that Nixon energy with the whole like law and order. Right. They both. Yeah. Both trying to impose that on what they say is a time of disorder of tumult in the nation. And yep. so they're trying to bring all that back. Nixonian Nixonian would be a fair description of Trump, I think. I, I, I don't uh I don't see how it wouldn't be. Because his, his you're you're right. The the attitude, the <clears throat> the sort of staunch uh conservatism that he approached things with or or p- pretended to <laughs> for whatever that's worth um it, it it is it does reflect nixon in a certain way and also the the sort of brashness and the and the kind of inability uh i i, I guess just narcissism of it where it's it's like I, I mean trump's very first like official campaign speech when he first announced was him coming down that escalator and then talking about how there's a breakdown of law and order on the border and yep. know, we need to you know uh, uh, nip that immediately so yeah I, I think i think nixonian is a very uh, good term yeah and not but not just that either you remember the nixon i'm not a crook that that kind of thing oh, right. it's just the yeah, brashness yeah. and the and sort of not not being able to just kind of eat shit for a minute prideful <laughs> You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Right. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And 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 also, I think, you know, I, I can't say this for sure, but you know, with Nixon, I always felt there was a certain. If we could look back in history, I think Nixon would be fair to say he was a troll. Right. Like oh. back in the day, if you had a troll, I think Nixon would have been. You could say it. And I'll never forget. Did you guys watch when, like, they announced video when Trump announced that he had won against Hillary? Right. 
Did you guys did you guys watch that little moment, that little press release when he was it, in front of the stage and he's like, I'm sure I did, but I don't remember. Yeah, I don't exactly. remember it either. Okay, so I remember it because he says he wins, right? And he and they start playing a music right behind it. Do you know and you guys say you didn't don't remember, it's fine. Take a shot in the dark, random shot in the dark, of the song that he has played right after he's beaten Hillary Clinton. Won't get fooled again. Is it uh, actually? Was was it? Uh, I don't remember. Was it We Are the Champions? Is that it or no? No, it's it's Rolling Stones. It's okay. Um, can't, can't always, always get, what, get you what, you what you want. Yes, oh, I remember yes. now. Fuck, you're right. Yes. Yes. Okay. Was, yes. Yes. And that. Was oh, really that's cool. funny. Like, I had forgotten about that. <laughs> I know. No, and people have, in general, people have forgotten. But like, basically, from the beginning, it's been a sense of like fucking with you. Like he's been right, fucking yeah. with everyone, you know. Because yeah, I even look yeah. at the picture. If you remember the picture, he's watching the election. I don't know if you guys saw. There are many moments where they cut him like very candidly. He was a, he was upset as he saw he was winning. He was not a like, but it's one yeah, of those moments where no. like. Once he there, won, he's like, I have to continue winning. I have to do yeah, this now. There was a theory. There was a theory, uh, like, while he was running, that he actually did not want to win. Uh, like, oh. he wanted to win in the sense that he wants to be the winner, but he doesn't really mm. want to be president. Yeah. Uh, that, that that, sort of I'm, I'm still, to this day, I'm partial to that. I don't think he wanted to be president. <laughs> I, no, I, I agree. Think, uh, like, he I, wanted... I think, I, I think he likes the fan club. I think he likes yeah, he the... Likes like he all like of this he could win right. right but he doesn't actually want to follow through with the, right the being about. president i don't think is the job yeah. that he wanted i think he just wanted to be liked a lot by a lot of people <laughs> yeah yeah no and, and i agree and that and i think very much like looking at it i do think that that's a bad thing to think i think that it's one of the he's one of those people that he once he was once he won then he couldn't back out because he's got to continue looking like he's winning but, yeah, you know, like that that song, I think, is, again, one of those case in points where it's like one of the most trollish moments. I think you could think of like in international history in which <laughs> the president is saying, hey, sometimes you might just find you get what you need. Yeah. Right. And, and so, you know, it's after that, though, you know, they only perceived to get kind of worse. Right. And the economy was doing good. The economy was doing fine. Mm -hmm. um, and the same thing that happened in, in a lot of the 60s, right? You didn't have massive issues of the economy during the 60s. It wasn't until the next, you know, the 70s till you get the stagflation. Yeah. And right. that's in large part because, in, you know, economically, that uh, you had the system of the post-war had kind of, it wasn't allowing innovation. That's why you had to go into neoliberalism. That's why you had to deregulate. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the same thing was during the Trump years. It said the economy wasn't doing horrible until we hit the pandemic. That's, you know, an exogenous factor right. there. But, you know, afterwards and as after with Nixon, you end up having, you know, this inflation issue because the system, economic system has expanded, but it's expanded in ways that the government hasn't been able to insulate it. Right. right. Like there's the, 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 in a certain way, my, my theory kind of posits that the market kind of runs away from the state being able to like mitigate the issues of the market. And that, and that's also what leads into the idea of liminality, 
because liminality is my is what I think a lot of conservatives are intuitively aware of, especially right now. And it kind of goes into the creative destruction that Schumpeter is talking about in economics, where there you have these you have this social discord that erupts from capitalism that the state is oftentimes trying to mitigate, but ultimately leaves you in this like middle zone of not knowing of not having proper social functions like clarified because advancement is running ahead. And right, at the right. same time, everyone and at the same time the state doesn't know how to deal with this with this brand new set of you know economic advancement it doesn't know how to deal with this new group of like crypto or right. or different areas in the market that advance like that it takes time for it to learn how to handle those or in some and sense it gets that, it's just to, to to add on to your point in some sense it gets co-opted by them like mm-hmm. like the blackrock sort of firms that 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 lead to pricing the uh, price increases and things like that but you have a, a government that is not interested in reining that in because that's their people Th- those are the people that they want to take care of and so they can't mm-hmm. they even if they wanted to stop blackrock like in, the, in their heart of hearts they wouldn't because that's who pays the bills that's who keeps the lights on for them yeah yeah no 100 percent and, and that's going to be interesting in the future, just as like a side note, because I know ESG is getting more into the news, and I've been slowly tracking that, but it's not in the essays for a good reason right now. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, can't, I can't address every little single, you know, every development. <laughs> but um, yeah, so the, so the general process that I, that I then looked at, kind of rounding out the idea of the interregnum, is that through these pitch battles of these groups that have risen during the chaos of, you know, the, the mode disintegrating. So, you know, mm-hmm. it was back, back in the day, it was the Black Panthers, it was the Nazi party, it was the weather underground. The C- and you see what the FBI, the FBI kind of engages, police and local law enforcement engage, different forms of the government are engaging, capitalists too are engaged in this, to, in this to a certain degree. Because you got to remember in the 60s and 70s, there was a big labor movement. We don't hear about it as much because mm-hmm. that was its zenith. But there was a big labor movement that was really concerning capitalists at the time because they were thinking that we were moving towards, the capitalists thought to a certain degree, we were moving towards post-scarcity. And that's why if you look at it, automation kind of went to the wayside. David Graver talks about this in one of his books. Um, automation became a secondary interest as compared to information technology. IBM, the different mm-hmm. computer the different computer companies that would then, you know, in the set late, mid to late seventies, that then would be like in charge of technology by the eighties and nineties. That starts to be developed too, but it's through all these battles that you end up getting a, a system that now is able to hand new issues, new kind of crises that develop, and they have a new clear method of handling. I I kind of reference um the the drug wars in the essay. Because there is a very, during Nixon's presidency, one of his advisors says pretty clearly, he says, you know, um, you know, we had, we had two issues. We had two groups that were a consistent issue for the Nixon administration, the blacks, um, you know, mm-hmm. be it the, be it the black Panthers or the other sides of the, dis, of the civil rights movement, or it, it the hippies, you know, the yippies. Uh, yep. Yep. And he was like, you know, the thing that we did is we we basically said all the hippies were smoking dope and all the 
uh, all the black people were doing heroin and that's how they engaged the drug war that then you yeah. know starts during nixon and, and a certain to like a, a, a serious so they're using that to then go into political mo groups like the black panthers like the hippies they use that as a pretense to throw them in jail yeah and you see that yep. you know later on with with reagan so during this interregnum process there are there are clear methods being developed to handle disruption in the system disruption about people who want to you know take on more get more rights or if they were, they have issues with particular institutions and you know there that's all happening during this time eventually it kind of gets systematized you see this with certain mm -hmm. perspectives of the of you know the uh evangelical right that starts to rise up with jerry Falwell. you see it with right kind of the milton freeman um milton freeman and these other conservative like thomas Sowell. these kind of conservative they're liberal right they're 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 neoliberals yeah. um economists at the time but their ideology starts to be enmeshed enmeshed you know through reagan and through some of these other conservatives to kind of produce this new accepted modus uh Met, mo, model of of, of uh, operation modus operandi right. yeah <laughs> and and that's when reagan kind of steps in especially after the you know the bullshit of the call years where carter was incapable of running the country you then have reagan that kind of embodies is able to enforce all these kind of new methods yeah. he and unifies all them together right yeah and you know it's it, I, and i would i would I, I hope it doesn't seem like I'm thinking, oh, well, Reagan did all this himself. But I think it's more so kind of this that happens culturally. I oh. think that there is this process by which, you know, the conservatives, you look at the Republicans at the time had lost, you know, after after Nixon, they had been losing a bit. They had to figure out new ways of handling. You know, uh, you already saw some of this, some of those ideas carried originally with, uh, was not Goldman, but... Uh, um with some of the worst you know the nuclear stuff was kind of put to the side by reagan until he needed to but you mm -hmm. see these develop over time and with reagan you see his first kind of inauguration of like this is neoliberalism this is it, what we can look back and say okay this is when things kind of yeah. shifted in a definitive direction whether whether it's you know fully consolidated i don't think it's as much a question as is can you like intuitively recognize it sure yeah, to your point uh what were you saying ace i'm sorry no no go ahead go ahead I was going to say, we talked about that period of time a little bit in the last episode, I think, where where uh, the sort of, uh, you, you point out, it's not like Reagan did all this himself. There was a weird sort of cultural push that led mm -hmm. to things like the moral majority and, and that just happened to link up with Reagan. And, and one of the interesting things about Reagan, the, the man, Reagan, the president, one of the interesting things about him is the moral majoritarian sort of side of things wasn't where his interest was necessarily he, those people were useful to him and mm -hmm. you know this because of his nomination of sandra day o'connor and when sandra day o'connor um sandra day o'connor did two things that really pissed these people off the first thing she did is uh she was integral to um abortion rights and the second thing was the, and the thing that she's not really super known for, but that she absolutely did do, was um, her involvement in keeping uh, affirmative action around. Mm. She, she basically gave, she basically put a 25-year clock on affirmative action, but she said, we need this right now. 
and the conservatives yeah yeah sandra o'connor there's a there's a documentary about her i cannot remember what it's on i think it's on pbs but there's a documentary about her that i watched with my girlfriend because my girlfriend loves sandra day o'connor um uh because she's in, she's incredibly intelligent sandra day o'connor is amazing just as a as a as a jurist and a lawyer but but she was a betrayal of the moral majority um and of that kind of strict, tight uh, con- conservatism, in air quotes, that the moral majority sort of represented. Um, Reagan, I- I'm fascinated by Reagan because I do not think that in-, in the deepest parts of him, I don't think he was personally a moral majoritarian. I think he saw them as useful. It's also one of those things where when you look back at this time period and you look back at like when you think uh, think of like Reaganism or like the broader cultural osmosis uh, around that time and you see all these like intersecting ideologies, it's not immediately clear what they all have in common. Like if you look at them, they really not they don't necessarily should be together, but they yet they are. Uh, And I think Mm. that's kind of interesting. Oh, no, for 100%. 100%. And you know what, Dean, maybe someone to think about, because you're bringing up Sinead O'Connor. Um, I mean, Sandra... Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor? <laughs> Sandra Day O'Connor. Yes, Sinead O'Connor, I love it. No, that's her name now. We're going back and we're changing it. woman, right? We're going back and we're changing it. That's who she is now. <laughs> tearing the Pope, yeah. Tearing the Pope's picture up on Saturday Night Live. Yes, exactly. Um, but, you know, maybe someone to contrast with that then, someone who I think is it was influential in that Reagan kind of um, shoved to the side, is, you have, you, are you aware of Phyllis Schla- Schlafly? Yes, the ERA movement, or the anti-ERA movement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't familiar with that until the <laughs> move, the document, it's not a movie document, but it's um, it's a show came out, Miss America or something, I think it was on Hulu. And I only saw it because... New York, the first year of the pandemic, I've never been to New York before. All the sp- oh, there were all lines for it, but they're all like deteriorating because the whole because the whole city was shut down, so they hadn't replaced all these posters. So I finally watched the show. It's about Phyllis Schlafly, and um, it's funny because like she's the opposite, and she was disregarded by Reagan. You know, she helped get him in the ERA movement, was something that was kind of consolidating for the more majority, or at least the conservative side. And yet she gets put to the side very quickly by Reagan yep. as compared to, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor. Right. Well, that's the thing is he, he was, that's what I'm saying. I, 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 that, that sort of uber conservative Christian sort of thing, again, in air quotes, that, that to me, Reagan saw that as useful. I don't think he believed mm. in it. Because it's one of the, because just like that, Phyllis Schlafly, you talk about uh, uh, the way that he betrayed. When Sandra Day O'Connor came out and, and was effectively in support of abortion rights, the, the, mm-hmm. the moral majoritarians lost their shit. They had no, they were, compl- they were turned upside down by that. And they felt very betrayed by Ronald Reagan. And I think Ronald Reagan, on the, on the other hand, was like, I was never going to nominate someone who was going to do any of that shit. That was never going to happen. Um, yeah, yeah that's, I, he was he was very aware of what was useful, but it was these cultural forces that he kind of harnessed. It's very Trumpian in a way. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and to be honest, I'm going to have to be, um, be straight up. My biggest concern right now is because I, I feel you in that in that sense. And my biggest concern is DeSantis. I am. I, I will go down on record. My concern is Ron DeSantis mm-hmm. when I think about this theory, because currently he seems like the one that could be someone if 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 this if repetition 
to be believed here or is that it it is like considerable i i could see the ron DeSantis type being the next iteration of that it's certainly possible but i think i think there's i think ron DeSantis works at the state level and i think ron DeSantis works within the party but on a national election i don't know if ron DeSantis. uh i I don't know if if people want him you know what i mean Uh, because it's it's one of those things on the smaller stage that he's on he works really well and people in florida are super glad to have him fine um nationally i don't know how well he works no, and that's, uh, to be honest, when it comes down to, like, the same thing could be said if you were looking from the left about Gavin Newsom. Like yeah, right. Yeah, right, yeah. I'm sorry, I interrupted you with, so with Reagan-era. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. No, no, you're totally good because there's a poignant part. No, no, no 100%. Please interrupt, uh, interrupt me all the time because I'm <laughs> probably saying something wrong or misspoken. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're fine. Um... I did want to ask you, just to clear up, because we're going to get into it more, I'm sure. When you talk about liminality, mm-hmm. what do you mean exactly? Like, what was just, just a sort of, you know, 15, 30 second description. What is liminality in, in the way that you're using it? So liminality, when I use it, is this unstructured or even destructured state in which an individual can be in with their social step and therefore kind of like their metaphysical sense of self, but also can cover, can also be defining of spaces like physics as, and then also defined within certain time periods as well in relation to spaces and to people. Is that clear enough? Or I, know, I know that's, I know that it sounds like very ambiguous, but it's well, it is. It's it is kind of an ambiguous term because it's describing ambiguity of a kind. Like it's it's the yeah. mm. <laughs> right. It kind of has to be ambiguous. No, exactly. Um, but it's no, the, it's 100%. a it, what you're describing at least in the way that I'm understanding what you're saying is it's a a a, a state in which your position socially or uh, or I'm 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 trying to restate what you said as best as I can socially or or uh subjectively in Mm -hmm. a state of ambiguity in a state of flux or or instability yes so you know the first so i i take up this concept from a particular school of and they don't call themselves a school but they're basically school of political anthropology which is kind of a niche area of study but they take this idea from this guy from the 1908, I think it is. Uh, he was French. He was, a comp- he was in competition with Durkheim about sociology and anthropology. But he spoke, he focused specifically on rites of passage or ritualism. Mm-hmm. His interest in, in this ritualism was he found that if you looked at a lot of rituals, a majority of them in his view, they all have this process in which someone, if you're talking about like the the novice that's being brought into like the community, or like the young man that's being brought into like teen into like a man or a woman, you know, young young girl becoming a woman, mm-hmm. you have these in rituals. There is a structure which they're kind of take they kind of remove your social status as being like a girl or being like a young boy. 
and you're subjected into you're then put into this period in this this existence usually in different tribes they take you out into this you know into the desert or a particular area that the rest of the village won't see you or won't be in contact with you and you kind of stay out there and you're in this between position you're not and yet you're you're not a boy anymore and then through the process of you know whoever it be it you know the shaman or the person that's in charge of rites of initiation um you're 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 put through these processes in which your new identity is being structured into becoming a man and and so you then so you have this tripart process of a right that removes your social status, a right of initiating this kind of limited status, and then a new right, and then a final right that brings you back into the folds of the community, back into um, a structured identity that you are acting within the community in which kind of structures how you perceive the rest of the world and how you're supposed to pursue your own interests, et cetera, within confines of society. Mm-hmm. And so that's, the, that's, that's kind of the basic intrigue that starts these people that starts this school of anthropology off they bring it up further and in, and in, in, into new states because they talk about how certain you know in modern society we have things that do this similarly right if you think about like college i was thinking like, exactly yeah, of law school, school graduation college. actually yeah. a law yeah. school graduation yeah. you're you're sitting there and then you come up in the line and then you get hooded and getting hooded is the thing. Like that's the that's kind of the moment, right? You sit there and people talk and people say things that they think matter and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But then you yeah. go up and you walk across a stage and they put a hood on you. And that's the thing. Like that's the moment, right? When you get hooded. And yeah. who who hoods you is a thing that can be important. Um I know my girlfriend was very very happy that the individual that hooded her was the one to do it because this was a professor that she had a kinship with and was able to talk to and liked. Um it's exactly that kind of thing. Exactly. And so, you know, a lot of what what I would say what these anthropologists are talking about is that in modern society in our, in our, that we kind of deal with we kind of have abandoned the 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 process of the tripart structure there you know we we kind of open a lot of times there's this kind of openness that we experience with the market with uh, society at large where your your idea is not clearly defined in any kind of ritual and any kind of clear process we could say like college but like you know once you leave college they have the closing right but like what are you then you're post you're post collegiate you know in, in modern jobs you know, when you get your jobs, it's not really that process anymore. Most of the time, it's like, okay, do you have the job or not? Does the recruiter call you back or not? And then they also talk about, you know, in terms of like social relationships, the, the secularization of society has meant that you don't have these clear definitions of identity and processes right. to acquire this identity. And so that got me interested. That got me interested because Bird, when we were talking about the theory of the interregnum, um, he mentioned, he brought up, I, 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 I'm blanking on the, I gotta look at the clown because I knew I was going to talk about this, but there's a clown, there's a portrait of this Polish clown, um, that is famous. Yes. I think, but he looks really depressed and 
Bird was talking about how that he reflected a kind of a gray liminality because Clown was known, he was a just he was known in Poland as being the person that was kind of like pulling the strings. Like the king was the king in name, but the jester was the one who kind of knew what was going on with policy. And so he kind of played this like background liminal force. That was like uh, Stanzik, is that how you, shots. are you referring to? Yeah, yeah Stanzik. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the picture of the sad yeah, jester the sad in the, in the, yes, in the chair. Yes. Yeah. Famous painting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he's when you know that the painting itself. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, by the way. <laughs> I don't want to. Polish. I have no absolutely idea sure I got it, it wrong. <laughs> but you know, in that painting, he's the the whole thing is that he the letter next to him is basically his home village has been destroyed, while outside yeah. on the other side of the panel, the king that he more or less like runs the affairs of the Polish king is celebrating like another coronation or party or something like that. Um, and so it got me into this idea of liminality and, and especially with, you know, thinking about the interregnum as this process where there's kind of no mo similar to what is being discussed as a limit, you know, liminal space, you know, a liminal identity. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, it kind of made me think, okay, in the 1960s and seventies, there was this, you know, one thing that's discussed about, especially amongst young people is this was the first time that you had a lot of young people who were you know you, they'd gotten rid of youth youth you know 40 50 years before you were an adult right you were a paper boy but you were treated like an adult you could right. you know yes. have your own account you around your parents didn't know what was going on half the time the police didn't know who your parents were even if they got even if you got in trouble but there's this creation of there's this development of adolescence and if you look in the 1960s and 70s, you look at a lot of the social movements. There's a lot of this. Uh, there's a lot of young people, or a lot of people who are who grow around them, who have kind of like lost, don't have clearly defined statuses anymore. You know, a yeah. lot of them. You have, especially the one place I've wanted to look more into, and I think would be very interesting to research. Do a couple of case studies. Um, the cults of the 1960s and 70s. Oh, right. Yeah. Because if you think about this liminal, this, you know, who is in a liminal state and you're talking about, you know, they have this no social status, you're talking about someone that is particularly likely to be suggested, suggestible to a kind of cultic personality, sure. right? You're talking about, you look at, you look at um, Charles Manson. All these young girls were women, were girls who left home because their home life was bad, but they didn't have this like clear, they weren't going to college. They didn't know what they were supposed to do. They're like a teenager, but an adult, all having time. And so this is, this is obviously is on that level. There's a certain rise of this liminal state identity that is meaning people that kind of means them more susceptible to following these uh, masters of ceremony or pretenders to masters of ceremony yes to, uh, and and they take you mentioned charles manson in particular they they keep that state there they keep you yes. they keep you um they keep you without an identity the way manson did it was just using a shitload of psychedelics just keeping people tripping all the time and you're you're detached from yourself in that way or giving them a false identity right right well that yeah it's kind of a heaven's like gate Jim style Jones. Right, 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 or yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Jim Jones, where he says, you know, he has multiple times where he says, 
you know, he's get he, you're at his bank when he's like, just so you know, everyone's been poisoned. And he's like, oh no, <laughs> 10 minutes later, he's like, no, you haven't been poisoned. But no, yeah. it, it, you're right. They, they, yeah. they, they, these figures that come in that kind of do that. And I guess I want to go back. I, I need to go back into the liminality to discuss a couple other concepts besides, you know, the liminality itself. Because what these anthropologists are talking about is they, they think there are a couple other concepts you need to bring into. First one would be in, in contagion. So they get this idea of imitation from another. A lot of these people are like people that Durkheim like said, you know, fuck off to in the early <laughs> 1900s. So these anthropologists were like, hey, let's bring all these guys back, apparently. Um, <laughs> but this guy, Gerard Tarde, he, um, he, he, he comes with this idea of imitation. He's, he says that, you know, in a lot of ways, human society, you can kind of break down of imitation and how people kind of differentiate imitation because you know you think about language well you know most kids learn how to speak by imitating the language when you yep. think about general habits and stuff people develop their habits of like identifying what's valuable through imitation you know imitation is kind of a consistent element of like what how societies function we kind of imitate you know if we're uncomfortable with someone we imitate how we would feel uncomfortable around them. we're not looking at them in the eye we're not you know talking to them we're avoiding their their gaze stuff like that is is consistent so when you think about imitation you're talking about this kind of breakdown this liminal breakdown of structure um that too can kind of flow through the population when you don't have that structuration you you see someone who starts you see the hippies for example engaging in free love well then you start to question well why should i not why why should i engage in monogamy or or why should i be opposed to you know smoking weed or something like that when you see that these are no longer structured as good or bad right when these are open to being imitated and and follow through and then likewise with imitation you also get people who get opposition who's they say they see that you see the hippie smoking weed and they're like hey no fucking way we're my kids are gonna smoke and weed we're gonna like stay over here no rock music for you you know that's uh -huh. how you get the <laughs> part of the moral majority they also have this idea of schismogenesis, which is kind of goes into the idea of how, you know, when you get certain social groups, even individual, we kind of forget that there's a feedback loop of behavior. Remember the guy who's, whose name first, it's in the article. Uh, um, but Gregory Bateson, is that who you're referring to? Yes, yes, Bateson. Yes, Bateson. He and uh, his example, first his example, he's, he's, he actually was doing an anthropology study in, I think, the Ndembu, um, somewhere in Africa. He gives the example of like a husband and wife that are in happy marriage. And he talks about, you know, if you look at it, there's kind of this feedback loop. And he's writing this in the 1950s where, you know, say the, say the husband is just an irritable, you know, fuck. Well, you know, you then you kind of you kind of the story of like the wife then the, like she kind of eggs him on. Mm -hmm. you know, she like he gets more aggressive and she acts more, you know, histrionic and reactive to his aggression. And then over mm -hmm. and over, the, you kind of it. Uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, right? There's this escalating <laughs> tension right. until finally some kind of resolution opens up, which in Virginia Woolf is, you know, the recognition that like they, don't, they, never, they never had a fucking son. It's an imaginary son um or you know they get divorced you know and that they finally you know the marriage ends and they get divorced and this kind of goes with social groups 
you can kind of see where, especially if we think, you know, if you want the best easy cases, Republicans and Democrats right now, you know, the Republicans in a certain way, especially under Trump, there's a certain mentality, there was a certain mentality of like, okay, we're going to just say the most extreme, even if it's not true, we're going to say the most extreme things, then the media and the Democratic media, especially is like, oh, look at these lies, look at these lies, look at these lies. And eventually, it just keeps us it's a tit for tat, you know, it's this yeah. continual escalation. And at the same time, what it's doing is it's creating these very clear boundaries that aren't necessarily about principle, they're not necessarily about like socioeconomics, they're not really about anything tangible. They're about just kind of filiation to whoever is giving a source of identity or giving a source right. of social structure to this phenomenon. Yeah. And then it becomes like social signaling, right? So like depending on like mm-hmm. you'll repeat whatever the uh, w- whichever side you want to be on, you repeat their talking points because that's how you show that you're on that team versus the other team as far as like mimicry. Oh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, like you could probably talk about we could talk about like individual when it comes to like police brutality or mm-hmm. even um i forget that you know during the riots in michigan or minnesota there are certain incidents that even if someone was like recognizably thought hey this instance isn't actually valid isn't fair or isn't like we mm-hmm. and it can't or at least there's you're you're losing out to do that because you're giving consolid you're giving the opposite side a win whereas like the, your right. side isn't going to be looking at you like wait what, what are you abandoning us what are you yeah doing? why are you aiding the enemy yeah yeah and i i i think when i first was talking this i mentioned like trans transcripts where you know mm-hmm. um you know trans people in general have had you know you have the far right that sees them as you know non not their gender so they so there's this constant process of back and forth you know of, of right. them but then you also have you know you have the blair whites of right who right you know become somehow supposed to transgender rights in general because they're because they're playing that right they they're become not like safe they're, they're breaking right. that double bind yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. they're yeah. accelerating that double bind you know. yep and then finally, they've got this con- of the political anthropologists have this idea of the trickster from, you know, initially like Native American folklore. Yeah. But it's the idea of someone who plays in the liminal, who's at home in the liminal, because they mm-hmm. themselves aren't grounded. And it's funny, a lot of these, a lot of the people I saw, they, they talked about how um, they, they mentioned like Hitler, and they mentioned a lot of your, your, um, authoritarians kind of do this mm-hmm. where they promise all these things where they they make all these promises that at the end of the day you look at them they're like these are contradictory kind of like right. trump right yeah yeah and the idea that you're going to make america great again based off of ideas when like mo- you know he, he is constantly referencing kind of like that 1950s golden age where you're like wait if i was, if I was black if i was gay right, if right. i was yeah, yeah. trans right. you know like there's so many people that that's not great for them yeah but it's this kind of playing of forces and taking advantage, you know, and, and I think there is this, um, he, he said something, he said something about this before this midterm that I think was very telling, kind of like what the trickster does. He's like, if, if we do great, then I'm entirely responsible. And if we do terrible, I, that was none of my faults. Yeah. Right. yeah not exactly. my, not, not my problem. Wasn't me. Yeah. 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 You know, and so, it's so he like, he promises to, 
this, he, you know, he, uh, the trickster kind of promises to like make things good. He's going to consult if things are going to be better. It's kind of like Nixon too. He's like, we're going to bring law and order. And yet during Nixon's period of the presidency is like the least law and order that the country maybe may have seen in the last 30 years before that, you know? Right. Exactly. And, and, you know, I mean, this is obviously the most obvious example ever, but you know, Hitler, right? Like mm -hmm. obviously a very tumultuous time for Germany. And he comes in and says, I will fix all these problems. And, you know, I, I think if, if I'm understanding correctly, like the whole concept of liminality is that there's an inherent unease to this for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of people that like grew up with certain social structures that things are a certain way um, when they re when those social structures fall away and they're kind of left with like this very ambiguous uh, because again people's identities are not just themselves on an island they it's tied into like the social environment they grow up in so when those collapse mm. it can also have this like existential uh, crisis type thing to a person's own being how they interact with the world so it, it can really be like this existential crisis for people and i think as you're saying that's where like the trickster comes in and promises oh yeah this is we're gonna you know we're back baby yeah it, it when especially like when you think of like um especially in some of the ways with trump i would say like you're talking about someone who like he's he, he's a rebel bourgeois right he, he, he's, right he's, yes <laughs> he's the bourgeois who is saying hey and I, I was just watching the ship actually monologue i saw it. this I yeah watch it yeah. And, but, he has, but he makes a great point. He's like, you know, the, Trump, what Trump does is he says, hey, I'm in this house where we're doing all these shady things. You're right. We're doing all these shady things. If you vote me in, I'll go do all the shady things for you. you <laughs> <know>? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that kind of epitomizes, you know, the trickster. It's like they can they can change, you know, they can say that it is the sky is green, the grass mm -hmm. is orange. And to a certain degree, because you're in this state, these people are in this malleable kind of unlimited position of freedom, but also this like very alienating and very anxiety ridden state yeah. of groundlessness. They will flock to that. And, I, and, you know, I mentioned the cults. I think that in modern society, one of the things I've been thinking about, because I was like, well, where are all the cults now? Right. Because like the 1960s and 70s, you, you, you had a lot of like cults, be it, um, jones be it charles manson or a lot of the new age ones and so i was like wondering where have they gone and i've 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 honestly been thinking that i think that trump the the uh, um QAnon phenomenon mm -hmm. you know that kind <laughs> yeah. of conspiracy yeah. i think in some ways that's kind of taken that position to a certain degree it's there's and that also, uh, 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 to your point i've been thinking a lot about about the cults and and mm -hmm. and sort of that same question where have the cults gone and then you look at the way people behave at a Google all hands meeting, or you look at the way that people behave, or you look at an organization like Nexium, which was, which was absolutely a cult, but it wasn't a cult. It was a business. And yes, and it's, it's one of these things where at, at this point I'm, that's where the, the cults, cults have gone, have gone. Right now. yeah the cults are corporate that's exactly it that is exactly it i i'm it's been secularized yeah, yeah i have yeah. almost convinced myself at this point again after watching like freaking all hands meetings from google and all this kind of shit the cults are corporate it's it's businesses or even and this is just a, because i think you're right the influencers i think influencers oh, yeah. too Oh, dude, yeah, becoming another online, hundred percent. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, especially like you know, and and, and I want to go down saying this real quick. I, I, I like crypto. I'm not someone 
saying, mm -hmm. oh, every, every, or anything like that. I, 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 I own some Bitcoin. I don't know how to access it personally, but <laughs> I own some Bitcoin somewhere. <laughs> um, but I think that this is, I think that, you know, the crypto, the, these, um, phenomenas of, of people jumping in and, and joining these kind of groups, I think that's where it's kind of moved. I think that there's less of the focus so much on the spiritual aspect. I think it's become secularized yeah. to a certain extent. Yes. yes. Uh, and that's what and, and then you have. Oh, oh, you've, you've given me an idea. Maybe the reason it's corporate, maybe the reason it is just like this, what we just saw it with FTX. Um, maybe the reason that it's stuff like that now is because it's not uh, the, the situation that we're in, the, the situation of uncertainty is not primarily spiritual and there's not really such a spiritual component to it. It's an economic one where mm -hmm. in, in a position where housing costs have increased 300% while, while wages, me median wages are stagnant. Um, millennials, uh, young millennials and zoomers, especially have given up on the concept of owning property. Uh, it's the, 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 the ambiguity is in, is in your economic standing now. I, I think it's probably both, right? Like, I think, it, I think you're, that's right. But I think it's also appears like, uh, in one of those sense, right. It, it goes like the, it, it intertwines, you know what I mean? So like, uh, what you're saying about the economics is completely correct, but that also goes into like, uh, how people view their social identity because, you know, now people can't, as you said, people have given up, um, on the uh, hope or the dream of actually owning property. That also, I think, uh, goes to Hunter's point that this actually creates like liminal instability because now it's like these identities that we had, you know, maybe 50 years ago are now gone. And right. now what do I do now? Where exactly. do I deposit my assets? So it, it's kind of like intertwines. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think those are great points, like a hundred percent. And it's, it's interesting to think of how that comes about now. I think, mm -hmm. um, I, you know, the biggest question for me is really, okay, what else is going on? So that's where, and, and that's why in part what I haven't, that I have up, they don't really reference the philosophy that I've been looking towards to try and ins installate in this framework that I'm that I'm kind of inquiring about that I'm trying to create out of uh, just my own research. I've been having to figure out, okay, well, what are the what are like what is what's the epistic foundations? What are the what's mm -hmm. the metaphysic foundations of how to approach? what I see as a phenomenon, I'm not saying that this is, you know, the end of all, end all be all, this isn't Marx's, you know, he, uh, historical determinism, but, you know, I'm looking at like a model that I think is helpful to at least think about what's going on um, in our society right now, especially in comparison to past history. So I started looking into um, the philosopher Gillis Deleuze and yes. That's and, Ace, and, and, I, Ace and I have spoken at length, not even on the show, about Deleuze. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you would like, I did make a couple quick notes about how yes, I please. see please do. fitting into his philosophy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so Deleuze and, you know, he, has, he's, he writes a lot with Guattari. They're cool. I love them both. I've only read two books of Capitalism and Schizophrenia in full and then um Deleuze's book empiricism empiricism and subjectivity 
Deleuze is the big postmodern metaphysician, basically. Compared compared to Derrida, he's doing his own thing based on the whole idea of metaphysics. And in Capitalism and Schizophrenia, which is written out, it's written after the 1968 French um, May Day's uh, revolution, or this rebellion more so. Sure. Um, Look it up. But it was a, it, they write this book, Capitalism and Schizophrenia, because after those uprisings, there was a psychoanalyst group that put out um, some pieces saying, hey, the, uh, these people are just, you know, they're reacting against the phallus of the father. They're showing their infant, you know, that they, that they, that they don't want to like be tamed by the truth of Freudianism and psychoanalysis. <laughs> you know, they, they basically. They basically try and you know make the, the the rioters out to be these people that can't handle reality, basically. And right. Deleuze and Guattari, um, you know, Deleuze is a philosopher at the Savion. Uh, uh, Sor- I for- all the French names, I, I mess Some up. He's at a big, place. yeah, he's at a big French uh, college. He's friends with Foucault. Um, and he meets this guy Guattari, who's a psychoanalyst, but who's anti-Freud, who's who's running yeah. basically this. Um, hot psych ward psych hospital in which the people that are the patients are actively working along with people that are therapists in the other world like it's it's a very it's a non-hierarchical situation so gotari is like both like kind of kind of like you know analyst and therapist but also like partially like a patient to some degree (laughs) um at least from what i've read about it and so they come together to write this book and foucault's he calls it you know an idea um a book on ethics which bizarre little statement but i mean he's referencing spinoza spinoza's book of ethics is about metaphysics and deleuze is a big spinoza guy he writes a love letter to spinoza in one of his books um more or less and so this book in capitalism schizophrenia they lay out these they lay out this new kind of social ontology so how do we approach society and Deleuze says, well, we've got to look at it as a series of flows. When you think about, like, in a society, mm-hmm. it's a series of flows of people, of things, of ideas, of land, of money, etc. And they see themselves as Marxists. They're not really Marxists in any, like, serious way. But in doing so, they're like, let's look. Um, you know, Marx has his whole primitive communism, um, slave societies, surf societies and then capital society right he has you have those four different kind of structures of of historical progression through dialectical materialism Mm -hmm. and so they're like you know we don't we don't really believe in that because because they're you know they're postmodernists, so they're like let's not think about it as if there's progression but instead let's think of like these different forms that at the same time so Mm -hmm. they have four main ones that they talk. The first one is the primitive territorial machine. The second is the barbarian despotic machine. Third one is the civilized capitalist machine. And the fourth one, it's not actually in capitalism schizophrenia. They develop it in the next book. Um, it's a, apparently Deleuze started writing it right after they got uh, capitalism schizophrenia published. Um, it's called the nomadic war machine. That And that concept right there, I want to do a whole episode on that eventually. So maybe like eventually we'll bring you back and do a whole detailed episode on that. Is that it? Oh, go ahead and it'd be so it. good. <laughs> oh yeah, I know it's so good. 
I know Ace Ace loves Deleuze. We have we've we've yeah. talked about Deleuze at like I said, we have talked about Deleuze at length, not even on the show. Yes. Just I love that. For fun. Yeah. <laughs> and Ace has Ace has introduced Ace introduced me to Deleuze. Um yeah. <laughs> which is a a, a, a wonderful one was a wonderful experience. Um, and it blew my head up and it was great. <laughs> oh no, I mean that's that's so true and like I'm not going to lie. I just I've been reading so I started reading specifically Deleuze's work 3 years ago started the project um because it felt like something because i'd read another article that um about how to lose and guattari were good for market anarchy it's somewhere on c4 so that's yeah where mm -hmm. I go for all my great writing um but um this it, it it's hard to figure out the shit that he's talking about half the time i've got like five different books that explaining to lose to me so i want to yes. go out and, and say you know when you deal with his concepts maybe it's not easy to it's it's not the right move to start it's out not a pick up and read thing yeah exactly no no yeah. i think i tweeted out the other day i was like you know um difference in repetition is his like book that he writes of himself he's not doing a monograph about another philosophy he did that for the first like 10 years of his career but difference in repetition i finally after three years of reading oh, man. Yeah. essays and essays by other people listening to seminars by other people about him yeah after reading multiple books that are about him and his ideas and i can finally like look at read difference in repetition it's not like i can understand it but i can flip through <laughs> and be like Oh, this is what he's referencing. I don't yeah, know if I fully I get have, this, but like I know what he's referencing. <laughs> I have read a pretty good amount of Deleuze. Not a huge amount, but a pretty good amount. I've never read a whole entire book, a singular book of his, like all the way through. Um, it seems... Honest, I think a Deleuze would appreciate that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Deleuze oh, no, seems the easiest digested in excerpts. Just chunks. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, he also was a big troll. He's he's, he's yes. one of the biggest fucking trolls ever because he writes yeah. uh, in capitalism schizophrenia, and this is you know he he writes he's like someone can be able to read this without any outside knowledge whatsoever, <laughs> any, any other knowledge, and I can tell you, I can tell you. <laughs> That is not true. The man is yeah, that, fucking, yeah. fucking with us. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a a four book is about psychoanalysis, which I have no concept of. I didn't even study right. psychology in college, so I'm like looking up all these different people. And yeah, like oh, let's write okay. let's write a book uh, called Anti Oedipus. Oh, by the way, you don't need to know anything else. Yeah, just yeah. <laughs> troll, fucking troll. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so but so he they developed these four different social organizations. I think is the best way to think about it. That they say these are the the four. These, these are the four that happen in society in history. You don't need any more, according to them. Uh, the first one is the primitive territorial. This is basically tribes, right? Your hunter gatherer yeah. tribes, maybe your early agricultural tribes, and. The way that they define these groups and the way that, you know, by starting out saying, hey, society is just a series of flows is what matters to them when you're identifying these different organizations is how do these organizations code the flows that are internal to them? Mm -hmm. So when you think about the tribe, one of the things in this kind of, and you're gonna touch this in the liminality is that they're trying to code everything. So 
you become a man. They want to code you as a man. They want there's a right. process in which the the they need to code everything because if they don't code everything, everything falls back into that like mythical chaos that the world yes, once yes. was. They're setting and up so like the artificial project. rites of passages so that everything has like this kind of like progression to it or this like end point to a certain extent where each that you, you have arrived mm -hmm. at a status. Exactly. Well, and it goes even to like environment because you know you'd see a lot of these a lot of these tribes. If you were to go on a journey, right, you were to leave. There's a right for you to leap, go out into the wilderness. They they mm -hmm. be a blessing in which you go and and then there's a right for you to come back because they don't want you coming back from this like outside decoded liminal space that they don't know right. what's going on, and then infecting the tribe. Right. And the same thing goes with marriages, right? There, um, there's this coding of, you know, women towards men, women to men, women to men. Same thing with coding, you know, the the localities and how they mark their territory. They're these these they're constantly trying to keep things coded because there's this existential fear, and it's something Deleuze and Guattari kind of talk about as almost. Um, uh, I guess it wouldn't be almost psychical. I mean, um, you know, like as if as if the tribes, as if the future these other organizations knew capitalism was on the horizon. Mm -hmm. It's they're trying to avoid the state of just decoded flows. Yeah, right. yeah, they're trying. Well, they're they're trying to keep the the chaos is outside. They're trying to keep yeah. from turning to this reality of decoded flows. Mm -hmm. So that's the primitive. That's the primitive territory machine. You then move to the the barbarian. Despotic machine. This is just a state, and this is the <laughs> state of you know, the emperor. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just a state, and they call it yeah. and, they, and they call it the first and they and they and the term the term they use in the book is the Erstat because they're referring to you know Ur, the first known you know city or at least first recognized uh -huh. city in Mesopotamia of an empire, and they basically say that there's only ever been one state. Because the state that they're talking about is the social organization that it also is trying to code flows, but mm -hmm. because it's always coming from the outside, it's always approaching these primitive tribes or these when, through empire, through imperialism, it's approaching them outside. And in order to take them over, it has to kind of decode the flows first. Right. If you think about this, like, if one of the great examples I think would be like, you know, in a local community and you see this in, I think in the change from the middle ages into the mid into the Renaissance last names, a state yes, exactly. needs to be able to identify individuals. Yes. Whereas in a, in your local village, you only, need, you know, Tom, son of Tom, son of John, son of, you know, right. Tim, you didn't need, you last know, names. that guy. Yeah. You don't yeah. need last names. And so the state has to start to decode and then recode yeah. <laughs> some of these relationships of the people that are underneath them. This actually, I think there's a great similarity between this and um, Scott C. Um, what's his name? Seeing like a state. Uh, oh, like uh, yeah, yeah I, um, I know exactly. Yeah, hold on. I know. Uh, God, why am I blanking on his name? I do this all the time with names, right? But James C. James Scott? C. Scott, yes. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, like states have to be able to know who they're governing to be able to yes. govern. You have to like right. be able to break down the population beneath you, the land beneath you, to be able to visibly like organize, well, taxes. How do you get taxes? Well, last exactly. names come in so that you're not double taxing John, son of John, because you don't want to tax 
John, son of Tim, because that's his father, and you don't want to tax the father twice when the son can be paying the taxes, right? Right. Um, and so states kind of do it. There's an interesting. The, uh, I was just gonna say yeah. there's an interesting representation there that this idea of of decoding uh, decoding flows, for example, like the, this this idea sounds to me. It brings to mind at least. And this is how my brain works, because people say things, and then I think of stuff that may have nothing to do with it, but it made me think of it. Um, it makes me think of the Bronze Age sort of tactic, whereby if you were an, an empire, and you were taking over these other communities, one of the things that you would do is you would capture their god. And, and you, mm. would, you would put their god, their god, their literal, uh, the, the, their god... Uh, is common belief that the god actually rested, resided in the shrine to the god, the statue of the god that's in the middle of town. And you take their god, and you put it on a wagon, and you take it to your capital. And you have their god now. Their god has, mm. their god serves you. That's it's a it's a very it's a fascinating aspect of Bronze Age sort of conquering of the of the mentality of the conquering forces of the Bronze Age that you would just take someone's god to prove you're mine now that that and then replace it with your own or you know whatever I mean this this is what this is what happened to the first temple of Solomon was it was sacked because there wasn't a god to take because mm -hmm. God lived in the temple yeah. so they just sacked the temple instead. Well, and you're touching on something amazing. I'm I'm so glad you bring this up, Dean, because you're touching on something very important there. So in all these systems, in all these forms, so like the tribe and the state, there is a process of inscribing. And when they talk about inscribing, they first talk about when they're talking about tribes, they're talking about scarification. You know how once you have moved on, you become a man, maybe there's a tattooing process or there's a scarification process yeah, to show sure. this is way they're they're inscribing the world to code it right that's their way of coding it what the, what Deleuze and Guattari happens with the state is that it it's you know kind of breaking up these chains these flows right of these lower of these lower groups but what it, does, it codes them over and it inscribes them then to the body of the tyrant or the tyrant's god whereas before the because of the earth right everything came because of the earth we code it because this is you know how we learn from our local god mother nature and this is how we code things the state that breaks some of those codes and then it and then ascribes it to well you are all here because of the defense of the king or because of the king's <laughs> right. god because the because you know you think of egypt why does the sun you know why does the sun rise well because the the pharaoh has arisen and done the proper sacrifice so that the sun will rise again over and over and over and it's all that kind of like the the idea of like what causes reality to continue or what causes the function it becomes uh -huh. subscribed as if as if it is because of the king as if it's because of the king's god that now things have been unified into the state and ascribes now this kind of emergent property of like this is why. Did that make did that make sense? That makes yeah, perfect yeah. sense. And there is actually a uh, okay. So to your act to your point, almost exactly. So there is a piece of 
Bronze Age propaganda that we still have because it's in the Old Testament. And this is a piece of propaganda that was written by uh, Cyrus or, or his people. And what, what, what it basically does is Cyrus is encoded into the Old Testament as an emperor serving oh. the God of the Jews to rebuild right. the temple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's in the Old Testament that, 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 <laughs> that Cyrus, I, I am Cyrus, and in service to your God, your God asked me to rebuild your temple, and so I will do that for you, and now you owe me. That's in the Old <laughs> Testament. Correct. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, 100%. That's so interesting. Uh, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord, the God given me, uh, uh, the God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whosoever there is among you of all his people, the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. That's beautiful. <laughs> That's way, a piece to, of... way to like a gra- way to grab that back, right? There's and it's showing that tension. In, yeah. in preserving the local, you know, preserving the, the Israeli, the Israelite view, and yet at the same time, scry- still retaining that power in the state. Yeah, right? well, it's, it's exactly what you said. It's, it's, it's taking this idea of service to the Israelite God and putting it on himself. And he says, I'm serving your God, and I'll prove it to right. you by rebuilding the temple. Yes. I love that. It's fascinating. I love the fact that there's like an old school piece of propaganda just sitting in the Bible. <laughs> oh, there's so much like that. There's so much. Like- <laughs> it's one of my favorite things. <laughs> I, I mean, Ace, when, if, whenever you want yeah. to talk about the war machine, you know, oh, like yeah. one of the first references is when Moses takes the Israelites into the Hebrews into the desert. That's cons- uh-huh. I, I, somewhere I, somewhere yes. I think Deleuze yes. mentions that or whatnot. That's where the war machine erupts. So there's a lot biblically yeah. that you could talk on talk about in that respect yeah if you want to go on to the war machine or whichever one was next i forget where you were yeah i think there's the next one but i i wanted to illustrate kind of uh, what 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 came to mind when you were talking about that idea that the 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 state or this um this organization or, or individual inscribes the the important um you were you were you were describing the scarification and stuff like he puts it on himself or he puts it on his god and that's mm-hmm. exactly what Cyrus did here. Cyrus took this idea of service to, uh, to the God of the Israelites, and he put that on like a cloak to say, "You owe your allegiance to me because I owe all. I your God is telling me what to do." Exactly, and, and it's and you know, see and you see in the repetition with like the the monarchs of the Middle Ages or even the divine right of heaven in China. Yeah. You know, the different emperors. It, it this is like a consistent thing. You know, I'm not saying that Deleuze and Guattari are like without you, you know can't be questioned on some of this, but there is a certain logic that they seem to be touching on that you can see, you can think of the examples, you look at history and you can see at least it's touching on this kind of similarity. You know, in the same way that um you know there in the same way that we were I was mentioning that, you know, there's kind of this they think that there's this uh premonition that you know tribes and the state both see a uh, fear of these like decoded flows you kind of that's, this fear is something that comes in relation to what the next social organization is and that is the civilized capitalist machine mm-hmm. and 
the civilized capitalist machine it's one that is it's one that is different from the first two in the sense that it functions off of decoded flows and then submitting right. these these flows under an axiom they and specifically axiom is kind of money it, it's the monetary system or it's or it's the process of the market to mon to um ascribe commodifiable analysis so money and being able to you know say this is five dollars or whatnot and right. the reason they talk about this is because if you looked at if you look at um you know the, the tribes going back to the tribes there was always this kind of fear of someone maintaining too much economic capacity so you know a lot of they they mentioned the potlatch in especially in the north um yeah. pacific northwest is the process where the chief maintains himself in in a certain tribe maintains his position because each year he gives away basically all of his wealth he can't be chief unless he's giving away most of his wealth back to the tribe and mm -hmm. so there's this process in in tribes to maintain that they don't have that they don't gain too much economic power in states they talk about you know well why is it that capitalism didn't happen in china you know during the song dynasty or in rome or in these other periods and they say you know there were there's this kind of fear of the market this fear of decoding desire which is kind of running which is what all these systems are kind of at their heart trying to manage control and and get the power and, and organize society from they 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 did things to stop that from running away so china you know once they once you know they're economically doing really well they they would close the silver mines they say okay mm -hmm. we don't need to run anymore because they're because the fear mm -hmm. was that money would start to have too much of that the market would run away in itself and right. they say it, it and that's where they come to say, you know, capitalism is this, is this organization that will happen. It will happen once. And once it happens, it will change the game for the rest of them. And so they, right. that's where you look at, like, eat, where, you know, most people think about Ireland in the 1500s with their enclosure of land. You had a bunch of these peasants who had been serfs, but who were getting kicked off the land, imperial mandate to, so that individuals could, um, individual aristocrats or even businessmen could you know then own the land outright the commons were being enclosed so right. then you had these workers that would then be paid their wage rather than living under the system of serfdom and this the the thing i think is really interesting about this and then bring back in liminality is that in modern society with the ideas you know desire we, we we're living a uh a regime of decoded flows Right. The state. The state tries to. The state. I think a good example that I was thinking about is like the state is constantly trying to mitigate these flows, be it like economic flows, right? You have the FCC or the SEC. Um, right. Yeah, the SEC. Um, they're trying to mitigate, you know, economic flows of money and capital. At the same time, you have these decoded flows like um, street bets that kind of rise up out of nowhere. <laughs> Yeah, break all the coat, break everything, and then right. the state has to come back, come up from behind. Okay, now we need to like figure this out because the worst thing that could happen is that happen again. You right. Know? Yeah. So the state is always, in, in some sense, reactive. Right. It can't. Yeah. It's, it's very bad at being proactive, uh, generally. Mm -hmm. 
and it, so it, it can't really for and i mean it, it may like if if you read any type of like you know uh economics this makes sense why like a centralized structure like this would be very bad at like predicting future outcomes so it it, it does make some sense in that regard as well that it's like yeah the, um it, it is always reactive to some extent it's always trying to pet, do patchwork right um in real time exactly exactly what is this so funny because i remember after like wall street bets that that happened <laughs> I, I i was sitting at a bar and i was like already i was like they're gonna be like planning around this they're gonna be trying to stop this from happening yeah. and literally within an hour i was talking to a guy who was working for a bank he's like yeah he's like i've actually been put on a team to start <laughs> monitoring reddit and these different groups <laughs> i knew that it was like within you know when, once it was happened once the one company was out like a billion or two they were all like okay we have to monitor we have to try and code the yeah mm -hmm. code this well, process so that we aren't yeah like i don't i forget what the exchange was the digital exchange but it like shut them out robin hood time. shut down robin hood. Robin hood. Yeah. yeah robin hood uh robin hood and the the other like the, the back-end trading platforms that robin hood uses yeah <laughs> shut down trading on those stocks That's right yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and and this is the kind of nature that they talk about with, with the capitalist, uh, mm -hmm. the civilized capitalist machine. The capitalism is basically this process of it's finding flows and it's decoding them. It it submits it to this to basically objectification, uh, fetishization and then commodification. So that at the end, you know, everything that in, you know, tribal society, all those relationships can kind of be broken down across this process of my right. of in which you have you know you know you now have labor free labor and you have flows of capital that can employ this labor and right. over time it it the process just keeps on going they also talk about it as this system that it continually meets its limit and then it displaces its limit and the way that I think, the way that I've come to look at this personally, it, is, is that when you think of capitalism, especially across like the last hundred years, there was always this expectation that, you know, like it would eventually hit this like post-scarcity future, right? We think of the Jetsons, we think of different right. ideals in which like you've reached yes. scarcity future. And yet what we've kind of found out at least if you look at how capitalism has moved its limit has always seemed to be finding new frontiers of desire yes. that humans like the 20 years before would not have had any concept of right you know like like we think of today you know you, you can be online on amazon to get whatever you want well the thing is like 20 20 years ago um most people weren't even on on the internet you know like there's right different, it was a fundamentally different set of desires but yeah. what capitalism does is it kind of it, it 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 goes to a level of human desires each time it kind of runs out through it kind of sets this parameter of this is the sphere of human interest and desires you know at this time and then it kind of turns over the board and, and finds out no well actually now hey we got this thing called fortnite you know you liked video games <laughs> yeah. before but yeah. now you can now you can get these skins on fortnite now right. you can get yeah. these mystery boxes in these video games you thought and doom was time, cool check out live service games <laughs> exactly yes yeah. Yeah. yes 
and so the, and so that's the thing that I think they talk about is that is that um you know capitalism functions off of this movement of desire. It's con- parts of human desire that at the end of the day are infinite. So that's that's kind of the thing. It it, it displaces right. those limits, and each time it does, you get to this new level where you would have thought you know. And that's in that in, in a certain ways why I think Marx is can say Marx is wrong, because Marx's idea of, for example, like the fall, declining rate of profit, is that eventually you know, uh, capitalism will have run its point and there will be right. no room to advance. Now the truth, in fact, capitalism every time has shown it will find a new level of desire, and it may not yeah. be one that we never saw before, but maybe it's a different okay. perspective. Like, for example, right. I it's see... like a reintegration of some other things. Mm-hmm. Like, you combine a bunch of other things together that already exist and form something, like, new. Right. Exactly. That's what I was, I was just thinking, since you both just said that, that's what people... That's why people called Steve Jobs a genius to some extent, was because he made what you wanted before you knew you wanted it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. It's it's really interesting. Um, Hunter, have you ever read uh, Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher? Yes, though I can okay. say, I, I, yeah, I have. Yeah, it's been a couple of years, but yes. Okay, gotcha. I, I, I just brought that up as an aside because it sounded, I, I, it, it, a lot of those points he kind of talks about loosely, not not exactly one-to-one, but it's a very, uh, it's, it's kind of similar. Yeah, no, he, he does. I, I'll, I'll say this. I, I don't dislike that book. What mm-hmm. I have found is I myself, when it comes down to postmodernism, especially when it comes down to dealing with capitalist, uh, um, anti-capitalism, I have mm-hmm. found myself more and more wary of anyone like Mark Fisher or mm-hmm. Baudrillard too, oh, where okay. they come, they both come to this position that's very pessimistic. Yes, and I'm it very, is very wary of that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too. Yeah, that's because, what I do because, not like about. Yeah. Mm, because I was always a fan of, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Guy Debord and the Situationist Society of the Spectacle. I'm, but, you know, I I'm think, familiar with the Situationist a little tiny bit. And there, a lot of what what Baudrillard, I think, is builds his work from is from them. And I think a lot of Mark Fisher, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Guy Debord ended up, ended up also killing himself after having kicked everyone from the Situationists. Um <laughs> And I think that there's this, and what I think I embrace to lose more is that they have their underlying um, dis- disdain for reality as it is, I guess I would say. You, uh-huh. In both, in all of them, they, they're looking for authenticity. Whereas my yeah. perspective is, as a delusion is like, it's all authentic, right? It's, it's, there's right. Nothing, this idea that like, oh, because it's, commodified it's not authentic to me it's just kind of ridiculous and it's a monster it's how you end up like Baudrillard thinking that everything's fake and we'll never live in reality and and... we only yeah symbolic value is the only real value of like tribal societies and yeah it's not (laughs) it's made me think you know it's it's not fake it just sucks like it's there's a difference (laughs) (laughs) it's like it's like blockbuster movies now it's like no it's not it's not that it's not a movie it's not that it's not art it's just it just sucks like it's just not good (laughs) yeah no 100 percent. and that's a different thing than saying oh we're all in a simulacrum and the simulacrum will never be the real or that we're all only in the real yeah yeah you know so i i don't disregard some of the some of their contributions but i think that yeah, now it's 
it, it's beyond the pale and it's, it's to a certain point yeah. it's just too the lose has a I'd... much more optimistic uh outlook than boldriard but that's not a high bar uh necessarily. <laughs> no, <laughs> not, not, not at all honest. not at all <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no not at all um Okay, so just circling back, we didn't. So, so yeah, sorry, I got machine. lost on the tangent. Oh no, no, I think we were. I think we were about to hit nomadic war machine. Like I think we were just about to hit it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the, the so you know that was the capitalist the capitalist machine. It's 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 acting. And I'm emphasize again. These are all acting in kind of like the same area, or at least like mm-hmm. we we would be wrong to think. Oh, we're at we're just at a period of capitalism now. Capitalism right. may be a dominant, may be the dominant form, but we still have certain aspects of these tribal organizations. Yeah. For example, like Catholic, the Catholic Church, for example. Yeah. You have very clear rites of passage, be it oh, more yes. Judaism. You know, religions still show these aspects. When it comes to the state, we, of course, still have a state. Instead, now you could say maybe like there's a competition continually about like who is attra- attributed like society's benefit. Maybe it's the dollar. Maybe it's also um, maybe it's also the state, depending on what the state's doing to control capitalism. Finally, the other the other social form that they come up with is the um, nomadic and the yep. nomadic war machine is. The best way of which I guess like I, that I heard it termed because Deleuze is kind of a Nietzschean is would be the Ubermensch, but if you took it as a collective or like a kind of group entity mm-hmm. in the sense that the war machine is and the best example is kind of like the Mongols. It's something that kind of assembles itself. It doesn't move like a state which is constantly moving in like a very linear path. It's moving yeah. chaotically. It's moving based off of like the local terrain. It navigates um, at a different form of speed than the state does. So they mention a lot like the Mongols being, when you think of the Mongols coming from the steppes of Mongolia, they they don't have the, they go off of, hey, the stars are going are, look like this. The wind, the wind is blowing the direction. We're going to, we're going to drive this direction and then go that way. Mm-hmm. They they function off a very like temp uh very like geographically localized perspective. Yes. And they just kind of storm everything, which is why, <laughs> you know, one day you have the city of Baghdad, the next day you don't have the city of Baghdad. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, and, and that and that's the yeah. same thing with them. You and it happens, you know, the the examples would also be like the sea people of the Bronze Age, right? You have the Bronze Age collapse have note of these sea people and what the losing Guattari say is you know when you think of these societies that kind of disappear we have these civilizations that kind of disappear overnight it's probably because a nomadic war machine came through yeah because they they they're not usually like the linguistic type or they don't have like written they don't have the civilization tools like writing or whatnot that they would use but they can come through and because they're acting in such a different form of motion than states do that are lumbering and kind of slowly moving etc they just desolate whatever comes into their path yeah and you know you see it with the with the bronze age collapse the mongols are a great example the vikings of the medieval era are the same kind of way where you know you have these people that they're on the outskirts, and that's often the time the kind of thing with the nomadic war machines. They 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 tend to be in these areas that are very inhospitable, and yet 
when they move from those inhospitable um, locations, they're just reckon with because they're they're moving in such a different way than a stationary right. state than an agricultural country or or government ever right. could yeah because um and correct me if i'm wrong but uh like deleuze uh proposes this as almost a counter to the state in a way that uh because yes. the state relies on territorialization um generally and like you know in the sense that you know it has a fixed territory it has a, a code where um, people are coded into certain roles and certain uh, um, roles in society. Uh, the nomadic war tribe in this uh, war machine in this scenario would be um, a group of people necessarily um, who kind of make that difficult because they defy territorialization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they'll be, they're the ones who like their horses do not know the boundaries of walls. <laughs> Um, right you know they don't understand the idea of a fence right because that's just right. not something that they that that is like in their perspective or in their viewpoint right. they don't have a need to close enclose the space and i think in but you're 100 right with that um it's like their very natures are just the opposite are are yeah. the opposites where the state moves like i think they say um a state moves uh fractally like based off of like the grid system you know it's trying to grid out the space right right right. the war machine is always looking at like the closest space from a to b whereas like the you know the state is having to like lump base of its grid system move this way then that way whereas the war machine like the horse is the mongolian on the horse just going straight at you (laughs) right yeah it's it reminds me a little bit not technically but sociologically of the early web like the free is in freedom mm-hmm. internet mm-hmm. where you have, I remember this phrase from a long time ago. Uh, and I don't remember where I first heard it, but I've known it forever. The internet always routes around. Like you can't, mm-hmm. you can't, um, it, you can't apply territorial thinking to again, sociologically, not technically because it still operates on cables that are in the ground, but <laughs> sure, sure. But sociologically, <laughs> You can't apply the same control systems that a state is used to applying to the free as and freedom internet because it, it doesn't function. And maybe that's why, holy fuck, now I'm thinking about like the corporatization of the web and the Twitter, and, like the, 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 right. the, the social media, uh, the social media yeah, government complex and all this other shit. Holy fuck. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm spinning out. What, what's, what's the next thing? <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> One group. I love that. I love that. Um, the one group I would, I would say, and because I'm, I, I've got to be honest, the web still, because I don't know, I'm, I'm, I, I get nervous whenever some random window pops up on the computer, <laughs> but, um, I'm like, oh, I started, I started hyperventilating, but anonymous, I guess, or at least early anonymous would be kind mm-hmm. of similar to this war machine, I think. Right. Well, it's the, the, the open source the, software uh, community where it's the like, yeah, the cypherpunks, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which are dovetail with anonymous, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And so those are the four. Those are the fourth systems. I think uh, the four social organizations that they identify. They're like these are the four that have existed from all of time that will probably exist until the end of time. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, they, I don't know how serious they would say that because like they they think that probably mankind. They're probably post-humans to a certain extent <laughs> at this point. I think at least they probably would be along with Foucault. Um, <laughs> 
but you know bringing that stuff into them looking at like the interregnum looking with liminality i think you can see there are certain aspects that would definitely be important here like when you're talking about capitalism you're talking about a process of just consi consistent liminality you know you're talking about this decoding right. of a flows newness. yeah and i think that when you're looking at when i think of the interregnum i think of this as a particular period in which there is so much decoding that that the state can no longer recode or code within adequate amount right. that it that it kind of sh there's a shadow in the modus operandi instead mm -hmm. now you know nixon has to find nixon has to find a new way to deal with these hippies and and you know <laughs> black power movements Trump has to find a way to um, well i guess biden has to find a way to deal with the 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 uh january sixers or oh, right. yeah. you know or the police have to find ways to deal with blm and these are all developing in real time and um you know there there there's no longer a way to across the board accept these same bundles of methods of keeping social the social order stay you know um right at equilibrium so yeah how much do you think and I just, I just had this thought, but and it could be nothing. But how, how much do you think the? Because now that you're saying this, one of the arguments that I kept seeing during COVID was that the 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 weakness of libertarianism is exemplified in a pandemic. That that you can't centralize that you're that you must centralize a response like that. Um, I'm wondering how much of that, knowing what we know now. How much of that response, well, what some of us only know now, how much of that response could have been uh, just grasping at straws to, to try and justify its existence in, in the way that you're describing? It's, it's been subverted now to the point that it can't respond, um, the, it, it can't control the economy, it can't control, um, it's, been, it's been stretched to its limits. And now there's this thing that comes over the horizon that it can try and take advantage of to justify itself, to to have the the most dramatic response possible to prove we're still here doing what we're supposed to do, which is control this coding. Yeah. Uh, do, do you think that's part of it or is it just am I overthinking? I think I might be overthinking. <laughs> No, no, I think, no, I think, uh, you know, in terms of when you look at the pandemic, I think what, what you can look at, because especially because it's such a massive, you know, you're talking about a global issue. And I think what you can kind of look at as is that it is, it was used for a kind of validation of, of state intervention. I think though, it also was a, it was, you know, this kind of um, experimentation too. I, and, and you right. see it with the states, you see it with the localities experimentation a into like how do you deal with first you know there's like how do you deal with these pathogens that we hadn't really dealt with at least to this extent um especially when you know that there are other things like ebola and viruses that could be much worse than it i think this is taken as a as you know an experiment by a lot of different bodies in government organizations i think it was also one where um how you use that, how you use um, government overhandedness in pursuing your own politics or developing your own side of the government if you're a locality and you want to like oppose the government. I think that's also a way that it could be looked at too. Oh, hey, yeah. Because I think during this whole process, I think this whole period of process is which vires for power in general 
are mm-hmm. trying to tackle is to create themselves to institute their own power to their own consistency of governance and as doing so are creating what will eventually be consolidated as to like new norms new modus of operandi right. that they themselves don't necessarily know are going to be the case but because of it because it's successful it's unsuccessful it ends up being it ends up t- gaining the prominence that it does okay if that makes sense. No, that, that makes, makes sense. that makes perfect sense. Well, it kind of reminds me of the 2008 of the response to the 2008 financial crisis, where it's this the level of corporatism that we exist at now uh, d- didn't exist before. I mean, it was bad, but it wasn't this bad um, mm-hmm. before the government decided, well, we bail out banks now. That's what we do. Um, or and, and things along those lines. We 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 give loans to car companies and we tell them to make EVs and we can manipulate the markets that way. Yeah. And we can do all these other things that, that they, that, there's a newness to this, uh, this kind of post, um, post, uh, I'm not sure how to describe it. Someone on Twitter gave me the name for the current economic system. I had heard that it was nameless and someone on Twitter gave me the name and now I've forgotten it again, but the, developing that system after 2008 where everything's based on, uh, uh, manipulation of the currency and bailouts and all these other things were, were that that wasn't really part of our economic system before that. There's um, yeah. There's also something really because uh, Hunter, you were talking about this before, where like in a, in a liminal space, right? Um, it brings about this unease. So whenever you're like exiting one norm and approaching some unforeseen new norm, that space in between. Uh, brings unease for people and this is where like the trickster archetype comes in right and and sets the new norms um for people um because you know that when, when uh, for a lot for a lot of people when they're in that uneasy state that's what they want they want someone to you know set some new norm so that they have some form of identity that they can work mm-hmm. off of. um uh it, it's also um in your article you also talk about like how the, the liminal space is also an opportunity for freedom, like in general, like that's where the most possibility for freedom lies. Uh, so uh, maybe you, um, uh, if you had anything to say about that. Well, yeah. And I, I, I to me, this is something that when, especially, uh, you know, as someone who's considered leftist or has considered mm-hmm. themselves a leftist for a very long time, I've kind of moved towards is that it, it, it's you know, capitalism, this process, process, especially in the last year when we look at um the right wing and the kind of resurgence of homophobia or queer phobia in general it's kind of given me a new light on that because i think that there's this truth that the the capitalism um this capitalist machine it does open up by decoding it opens up this liminality and that liminality and desire is how you are is how you open space for queer people, for transgender people, for, for right. gay people, you and widen the margins in some mm-hmm. sense. Uh. And and there are ones that and you know once you do that, it's kind of a Pandora's box, right? Right? Because because right. you know you have opened the door to amory like i mean to be honest that's been that's something that is open that you know you're starting to see now and conservatives conservatives kind of always had this premonition of that yes so i think that like you know of course i'm glad that they're i'm glad that they're still losing 
in that respect. You know, <laughs> yes. It's so funny. I'm like, I'm like, thank God I, you guys were right, but I'm glad that, you know, the liberals gave us the opportunity here to move a little past. It's, it's also funny, too, to me that, um, you know, and this is something I've seen, too, with, like, certain people who, like, used to consider themselves libertarians and now don't, which I'm frankly glad uh, that they've mm -hmm. moved on to something else and they're yes. not, you know, uh, claiming to be libertarians anymore. But I feel genuinely feel like they saw maybe for the first time that, oh, actually, yeah, free markets are not going to necessarily give us this like uh, traditional cultural conservatism that we uh, uh, that we're fond of. Um, and maybe it is actually like a uh, a liberalizing force in a cultural way, um, which I actually do think is true. Um, oh, sure. I feel like a lot of right wingers saw that for the first time. Uh, people who might have been more like, let's say, uh, libertarian leaning at, and I think that like caused a reaction and drove them uh, to the right farther uh, into an anti-capital. It's funny, an anti-capitalist right wing, which is a mm -hmm. very funny thing to think about. No, hundred percent. Yeah, the desirous of kind of strongman leadership and stuff like that, yeah. um, which is which I find fascinating. I don't know how you wouldn't intuit that. I don't know how you wouldn't intuit that uh, that. Uh, freedom is liberalizing it it kind of it seems tautological i don't understand right. how you wouldn't i don't anyway yeah. <laughs> well because because i think it is this kind of because i think that there's still the desire to close you know to end the liminal space to to like mm -hmm. i think a lot of conservatism especially when i've been because i've been looking back at um some of the old, some of the older arguments like Thomas Paine and against Burke, Edmund Burke, right? And conservatism mm -hmm. has always kind of you know, the the quiet part has always been, and they were and they've always been slightly right here in in kind of fucked up way, is that one grounding aspect. It's but the only way that you can adhere to your tradition or that you can validate tradition is through transcendence. You have to validate it through this kind of transcendent like you have, right. we need these these essentialist categories of man, woman, of married you know, fundamentally good quality for society and that if anyone who doesn't want it's kind of something fucked up with them. You know, mm -hmm. there's been this kind of view over time with conservatism that violating these essentialist categories and moving away from it is going to be a problem. Well, I think that we're reaching another point where in America, you never had the, you didn't have as much this absolutist viewpoint which you get from a lot of the conservative country or the conservative movements of europe because they had the absolute the desire for an absolute monarch or an absolutist government you know, dictator mm -hmm. etc you didn't have that as much in this country but i think that this new move this new wave of conservatives especially in the natcons you see this is they recognize that the game of liberal of free markets will not win well, they will yes. not win. Yes, they, they, they're there. It is going to be a long, slow, sometimes slower than I'd like process by which their norms, their categories be lost in society. Because at the yeah, end yeah. of the day, you you're talking about a system that's looking at desire and desire doesn't right. give a fuck about your categories. Desire is yeah. going to find its well, it's going to find its new. And that's not to say that I don't think in the future. I could see easily there be certain like resurgences and certain like um, conservative living. Like for example, Catholics are apparently resurging amongst sec atheists are changing to Catholics pretty quickly right now. Uh, yeah, there is I a hilarious there a is a pretty big swing happening among especially Gen Z where they're 
really find in religion um, mm. a lot. And it's, it's one of those things, I, I find it, I, I find it, but I'm not surprised. It doesn't surprise me at all. Because it's, it's indicative to me of, of exactly the kind of social, sociological swing that you would expect. I mean, you, you, you've had, yeah. just, uh, I mean, it's, look at the, uh, you know, to, to use the terminology of the, of, of the episode, look at the liminal situation that we're in. And where are you going to find stability? Where are you going to, if you're looking for stability, where are you going to find that? And a very old church is a great way to find it. Exactly. And that's why, yeah. like, I'm not going to ever be someone that argues against people, like, approaching religion. Like I said, I right. sure. identify as Catholic. Let's put it this way. The Vatican would have me burned if it was 500 years ago. <laughs> but I still consider myself Catholic. Because I think there is, because I, I, I think that. And especially in talking about liminality, I think there is this truth that like people do need when you're living, progressing through your life, you have to have certain structures that you are able to adhere to or think to. Sure. And I think that religion retains still uh, and spirituality more generally, they retain that ability. They retain the, yeah. the ability to help someone ground how they are approaching their life, how they're approaching the future, what they want out of their life. And that's cool. Yeah. I think um, the one of the bigger contests that we're seeing too, when it comes down to like liberalization and especially why the right wing has been really pissed off with, you know, places like Disney these media companies is because part of that part of the of of that decentered feeling is because narratives are, are now competing narratives that are being created for lesbians for gays for minorities across the board and i think that that's going to that also is where there's um an avenue to try and mitigate the liminal sense that we have because i think there are a lot of people who, are, who have been on the margins they don't have those narratives. They kind of live consistently in a liminal space, at least to a certain degree of liminality, because there is no, there is no like, um, you don't have, you know, the Cinderella stories. You don't have the Pride and Prejudice stories for those margins of the, or the, right. how to live those, those, those people at least figure how they want to model their lives. Those are now coming up and now there's competition. So, you know, I still, I think religion is still going to be something that needs to be looked at. I would like it if there was more secular ways of trying to deal with liminality itself too, because I think that, you know, every religion has a potential for, for violence. Every non-religion has been potential right. for violence right. too, but you know, it's like, oh, there's, these ones are particularly concerning to someone who's gay, you know? Right. <laughs> I found I found some values. I mean, just just pointing to this sort of on that idea of like a secular way to deal with this kind of situation. I mean, it's just like this. The show's called The End Times Continue. And and when I when I read these pieces, I texted Ace and I said, "Man, yeah. uh, he is describing a a method of analysis for the show's namesake. The 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 the, the End Times Continue is about this." Um, the, 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 the name of the show is about this. Um, and so what, what, in, in, the, I say that to say the following, which is feeling that anxiety and, and having, you know, run numbers and looking at how bad mm -hmm. things look, the, the, to me, the, 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 the secular, I guess, way that I, cause I'm not a religious individual. Um, I was raised religious, but I'm not, um, 
the the secular way that I've done it has been a a, a pinch of egoism and some some introspection and planning and and what do I want and you had mentioned that this is a this is a system that's reactive to desire but what you desire doesn't necessarily have to push boundaries I I know for me Mm-mm. I want family I want land I want to get the fuck out of the city I want these things you know what I mean these are things that I desire and so to, to me, at least, I found that it's way easier if you just try and make a plan and position yourself and then lift your hands up while the roller coaster goes down because we're not escaping this. <laughs> but, but this is yeah. But it's but just try and position yourself in the best way you possibly can. That's that's to me. That's how I've chosen to deal with the anxiety. And it's not necessarily because I don't want to go back to religion or whatever. I don't care. But it's it's more that that's what my sort of uh response to it has been almost mm-hmm. almost from on a personal like a like a on the level of my personality just wants to deal with this kind of anxiety in this way yeah. um i mean look yeah. it's always made fun of but if you're on the titanic and it's going down you might as well rearrange the deck chairs make it look nice <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's well it's not a bad yeah. sure <laughs> Well, yeah, it made me like, an, uh, I think one of the things that I've thought about going on with that. One of those things, the online memes is always like, well, you know, what if we're in a simulation? You know, like, the, the, <laughs> you know, that, 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 right. that proverbial right. thing of like, oh, well, hey, you know, if, there, if simulations are possible, then we're probably in a simulation. And, you know, my thought process, whenever I've heard that, my, kind of, my thought process has been like, well, doesn't sound like I can get out, so why am I not going to play this as well as right. I can? Exactly. Right. Like it, it doesn't change. It, it does not change my life one bit. If what mm. we're really here, if this is all just a simulation, because I have no other grounding for reality other than what I am experiencing. Exactly. Like, that's exactly. It. So what, no, who gives a fuck? Like, what are you doing? Like, we talked matter. about this. We talked about this a little bit on a, on the, yeah. was it the last episode or the episode before that? We were no, talking about like, what does it yeah. matter if I'm a brain in a jar? I'm doing the same thing I'm doing now. Yeah. yeah you, just, you still have to embrace the situation that you're in. And yeah. so, you know, I think I, I agree 100%. I think that um, I, it's funny you mentioned, you know, um, Dean, about the, you know, charting things out. Because I think this, I think this in part explains stuff like um, Jordan Peterson. I think that Jordan Peterson is oh, yeah. like a great example of where of there of um, the band for that kind of um, grounding. And of course, especially has- early Jordan Peterson, early Jordan Peterson is is I think worthwhile, um, really. But no, in, in that you know, sense, his books sound his his first book sounds like it's really good. I know some people who like it probably did help with. I, sure. I, I'm never going to. Mm-hmm. chagrin that of them because i think that it doesn't even matter where you find it if it works for you exactly that's more so what's what's important. right i find exactly. it funny i will find it funny that we're talking that of all the people they pick they pick a guy who is as much as he wants to rail against them is a postmodernist. yeah yeah very much so is, and his whole use of Christianity is the most postmodern use of Christianity yeah, I've no. ever seen. Yeah, yeah, that is it, that is really hilarious because you're so you're, that's so correct. Especially if you've listened to his recent interviews and like um um he it will he will straight up talk about postmodernism without using that term, without using that name, mm-hmm. but yep. he will use postmodernist rhetoric 
and um, an analyst uh, uh, and, and like just how he interprets things and interprets questions. He sounds just like a postmodernist. So you're absolutely correct. I, yeah, because there was one, I think there was on Twitter, there was the one little shot and he's talking to some guy who I think is the guy's Arab or something along those lines. And, he, and he's like, he's like, you know, you're sounding like a little bit of postmodernist. And it's like, yes, because he is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because he knew so little about postmodernism because he thought that he was just talking about Foucault and Derrida, which I don't think he's ever actually read. He is yeah. into being like the biggest postmodernist on the right next to some of the absolutists or, or Curtis Yarvin for this modern, for that matter. Yeah. <laughs> Is very much so. His, I know. Yes, I I have not. Jordan Peterson fell off. Let's be honest. But the 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 uh, the early stuff I know gave a lot of people the clean your room thing. As much as a meme as that is, I know it impacted a lot of people. Where it's just like, oh, no, yeah, getting your shit together is probably a good idea. Like, you know what I mean? It's that that kind of thing. This very valuable things that Jordan Peterson brought early on. I mean, he. Later Jordan Peterson is later Jordan Peterson. <laughs> There's sure. also some sure. things um, like with Jordan Peterson and like there are a bunch of YouTube videos that will break down much better than I will, but they just go in and eviscerate Jordan Peterson's like knowledge of postmodernism. Oh yeah. Uh, because like who, wait, who's the objectivist who wrote that book on postmodernism? What's his name? He's like, he gets interviewed yeah, all the I was time. just watching that video. I was just watching that. Um, It's called, it's on cuck philosophy. Yes. Get, yes. Cuck philosophy. So I can give it to PBS. I was just looking it up. <laughs> Great YouTube um, name. <laughs> I know. No, it did. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. And I just got to pull the guys. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I know this uh, the the, the um, objectivist who wrote the book attacking postmodernism, but I don't remember his name right now. Um, okay, because he goes after he goes after Kant, and it's like, okay, I'm not even like the biggest Kant fan ever, but like, there's no reason to go after. <laughs> right. There we go. <laughs> um, the guy is. I'm getting there. Getting there. Uh... Oh, yeah, it's Stephen Hicks. Stephen Hicks, yes, thank you. There yeah, we go. and if you want, yes. and if you, if anyone wants to watch it, um, it's on Cuck Philosophy. It's from four years ago. It's called a critique of Stephen Hicks explaining postmodernism. Yep. Because, it, and this is something you see from a bunch of people. They reference this book, which wasn't even, wasn't even peer reviewed when it was published. It's like an, an he published it himself. Um, yeah. but it's it, it goes through why this why this perception of postmodern jordan peterson has is just not even correct which is why he can why he doesn't recognize that he is doing postmodernism. but yeah, i agree with every, you oh, oh sorry go. go ahead no 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 ac go I, I was just gonna say um um i've never read stephen hicks book on postmodernism here but every person i've ever interacted with who has read it said it's just completely wrong and trash so and that's the yes. book that jordan peterson like entered postmodernism through that's the lens he and looked through at postmodernism through was that book uh so it really it makes sense why he got it so wrong uh mm. ultimately no 100 percent. and going off of what you said dean i agree with you on on the early jordan peterson stuff i think there's something to be said about his work in that i and i forget who it was that i was that i was listening maybe it was like one of the boring like liberals on youtube but they were talking they kind of referenced him in in comparison like gordon ramsay 
where uh, in yeah. both cases you have this situation where they bring up where both Jordan Peterson and, and Jordan Ramsey are bringing up very valid like uh, advice yes. be it for like finances and Gordon Ramsey or like lifestyle with Jordan Peterson. The thing is, is that like these aren't necessarily ideas that hadn't been brought up before. It's no, that they no, haven't no. been packaged in a modern setting. Yep. And it's it's all kind of rehashing. Leave. It's all re all mm. of self-help is rehashing and all of Jordan Peterson is just self-help. Like that's that's yeah. the thing. Like he says, that's the only thing of value that he really has done is in his self help stuff. It's you're exactly right. It's the packaging. It's the kind of um sort kind of sort of conservative sort of lens uh that 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 reflects the times that he mm-hmm. put it in. That's what made it impactful. It it the message is no different from what your granddad's granddad told your granddad to do growing up. It's all the same thing. Or like Tony Robinson, right? Like yeah, Tony right. I, I, I've not read him, but I'm, I imagine that you go back to some Tony Robinson's early stuff and you probably find very similar things with like mm-hmm. Jordan Peterson's perspective, like 12 Steps for Life or whatever. Right. Right. But it's, but it, it's the, you're, you're 100% right. It's all packaging because it just, it's mm-hmm. just reflecting the mood. It's, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with any unique knowledge. This isn't new stuff. Which is interesting yeah. in itself, because yeah. I've 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 always kind of thought that of self help guys, where it's just like this is just advice my granddad gave my gr- my my great great granddad gave my granddad. This isn't this isn't really anything new. Mm-hmm. It's know, just said like differently. Whole, going back to the whole like concept of liminality and how like a lot of people feel anxious because like all these social structures that gave them their identity have broken down, and now they're looking for you know people like Jordan Peterson. There's also um, the the trickster archetype grifters who are absolutely just malicious actors um, and who feed off of these people's anxiety, um, things like that. Right? What's you see that. The, what's that new guy? Uh, which one? Who, who's the new guy that that uh, he was like? He was basically like the oh, Andrew new... Tate. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yes. Andrew Tate. Uh, yes. Exactly. Yes, yes. People like that. Uh, <laughs> um. I've I've These railed against everywhere on the internet. Oh yeah. I've I've railed against the masculinity grifter for a long time. Yeah. But that uh, is one of my that is they are some of the worst villains yeah, I've ever no, seen. These wrong. masculinity grifters are the fucking worst people. Mm-hmm. Like they it's it's really bad because they're they I at at at, at bottom, I'm sorry, I'm getting mad. At bottom, <laughs> these people are taking advantage mm-hmm. of boys with no guidance. And yeah. the, they that is scummy to me, and they're putting shitty ideas in their heads. Oh, hundred percent. But that is that. Oh, that's 100%. what bugs me about those people. I already have like a kind of like a skeptical personality. Whenever I feel like someone's trying to sell me something, I can oh, yeah. spot it immediately. And these people make my skin crawl uh, whenever I like unfortunately see them happen across my timeline. Oh yeah, it's it's bad. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not great. Oh no, hundred percent. And you know, and the thing that I that upset me, I think, just that there is. I I'll be the first one to say there is a need right now for people to address young men and mm-hmm. the situation for young straight men today, more than there has or ever has been. Like I I I, I want. Mm-hmm. I'm not about to like go in as like a men activist here, but you right. know when it, when it comes down to like the state of young men, and especially when we then people come to another thing, which is you know the school shootings and whatnot. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. 
There is an existential crisis. I think it, it for a lot of young men right now, because you know, lim- in this state of liminality, we are breaking down, you know, masculine stereotypes and, and roles, because there are some of the you know the longest running are going to be the most destabilized, and there is a right, breakdown right. in narrative, and it, there's been a destruction of narrative for these men of how to consult, how to conform oneself to masculinity in a healthy way into the future that isn't uh you know slap the wife kind of bullshit yeah right 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 to the moon one of these days right yes exactly and and i think (laughs) that you know when it comes down to i think that you see that with 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 mass shootings with a lot of these um incidents and the incels i think that it there's there's a big need for this and i think the problem is that you know these people like Andrew Tate are the ones that get the vo- that attention when there is so much yeah. of a greater need for a healthy new modelization of that. And one of the things done. I just think that uh, it, it absolutely can. But one of the things that's that's affecting it, and I uh, I don't know how much of this you've seen around, but there is a one of those things that's also destabilized. That they're because they're destabilized together, masculine masculinity and femininity. There have been multiple thinky piece articles, but I think it's reflective of a real thing where women are earning more now than they ever have before. But the problem is men are not and men are under earning and, and men are affected in a, a lot by the by the underemployment sort of uh, epidemic that, that mm-hmm. is causing people to question. I've seen a lot of think pieces, particularly from women in women's uh, periodicals about I can't find a guy who I think is worthwhile because none of the guys make more money than me. And it's like, well, but, but you're, but you're, you're in an economy where you're making more money than the men are. Like, that's just the reality mm-hmm. of the situation. And men conversely feeling incredibly anxious because they cannot fulfill the masculine role of breadwinner. The economy is just not lined out that way right now. And, and they, they, they can't, it's not, they just can't do it. And it, 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 you know, your dad told you that's your job. So there's this weird right. anxiety that, that, that men are feeling that, that is responsive to the same anxiety that women are experiencing as well. And this is, of course, you know, uh, straight relationships are most affected. But the, <laughs> yeah. but the, yeah, but yeah, that's the, course. but that's something that I've noticed is happening because there's a lot of, there's a lot of women who just aren't spending time on dudes because dudes don't have the same level of, uh, well, you know, because the marketplace is bigger now. And so it, yeah. you're not going to have a bunch of men at all the highest paying jobs and all their shit like you used to have. It just doesn't exist anymore. Um, right. just, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating thing, but there's no way to deal with and Nobody knows how to deal with it. Nobody knows. It's, it's insane to me. That, 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 well, nobody's talking about it first and then nobody knows how to deal with it. Yeah, no, 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 100%. And I, and I was, you know, it's funny because I remember reading an article in the last two months or so, and it was talking about these, about women that they like couldn't find men. They did some kind of studies and they found that, you know, like a lot of women, they, they weren't fine, there weren't enough men um, for women of certain income brackets that they would want to like associate with those women, men um, because the men were making less than them. And the thing is, is that, you know, that, I think that's largely to an extent. I don't like the, I didn't like the phrasing because what I also thought is we do also have an issue, I think, where a lot of men 
would be very uncomfortable dating women that are making substantially more than them. Yes, it, it induces oh, yeah, a, a kind of anxiety oh, yeah. because you're supposed to be the breadwinner. You are the man. You right. are supposed yeah, to be the one. of what a man is supposed to be. Exactly. Right? And then that exactly. conflicts with, yeah. This is something I've had to, this is something I've had to deal with personally is that anxiety because look, I'm, I'm still in school. My girlfriend's working. She's supporting us right now. It, there's a, there's a level of just like, I've been tempted to go down and fucking apply at the Walmart. I'm not supposed to work while I'm in school. You're not, you're really not supposed to, you're not allowed to, but the, I, I've, I've been very tempted to, cause it's one of those things that, that that kind of anxiety is very real. It's very real. I've had to come to oh, yeah, terms dude. with a couple of things about myself. <laughs> No, and that's and that's fair. You know, it's not something to be diminished, right? Like oh, having no, that anxiety no, is not a thing at all. And I think that we'd be so much better in discussing. I mean, I think I think one of the big problems, at least that I noticed from from where I was, and I think we can talk about this in general. So, is like the focus on college has been screwed is fucked up. Oh, the God. focus on college for most oh, of yeah. the population is fucked up because, especially for men. You are sending them to an area where I'm not saying uh, obviously I'm not saying like men shouldn't be going to college, but I'm but there are so many more men that should be do that would be succeeding in trade schools yep, where yes. they are making a lot more yes. money from trades. Yes. Then if the then trying to send them to go to liberal arts school where they're competing with all the women in an e for an English degree. Right? I've called you it. Know, it's right. like, like there's 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 been a there's been a mismatch of focus because yes. everyone wanted to try and make college into the big signal the economic signal to say that you're successful it's it's fundamentally missed out the fact that like there are even if we do you know as someone who doesn't isn't a big fan of gender there are proclivities of men that that a a lot of them will be really fucking good as carpenters or plumbers or whatnot and we should probably be sending a lot more of them to that direction than expect them to compete you know in gender theory studies but the problem though too is the scam of it's a the the the, the college matriculation scam is a scam that is designed as a wealth transfer f uh, toward banks and the government. And that's it. Mm. There's no, there's the, because it's because of the, because of the way the student loan program is set up in the United States, the, they have to keep funneling more and more people into those college systems in order to keep the money flowing up. Cause that's where it goes. It goes to the banks and it goes to the government. It goes to the banks. It goes yeah. to the universities, the state universities. So that that whole the way that the the reason I, I know I had there were uh, call, there uh, high school counselors who got fired for suggesting people go to trade school. Because you That's cannot insane. you cannot do that. You have to send them to college. You have to. Whether they're going to fail out, whether they're going to it doesn't matter because oh, yeah. because the money has to keep flowing. Again, just like those old uh, social norms that, you know, maybe don't apply today or, or breaking down in the state of liminality, uh, this idea of you have to go to college to get a good job. If yeah. you don't go to college, you're a failure, you know, yada, yada, yada. You're just going to be, you know, some poor working schmuck or whatever, you know, whatever the narrative was or still is to some extent, that still hangs over people's heads uh, even now. Um, when, mm -hmm. you know, when there are still m like more opportunities now with the invention of the internet than there have been in the past. Right. Uh, but it's still, as you said, like, especially through like trade schools and things like that, it still hangs over people's heads and gives them in, in like just intense amounts of anxiety. 
Oh, 100%. And the whole so, thing I, is... That's one of the things. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just... I, that's no, that's you the go. thing you guys, that... That's the thing that attracts me. I've been too much. Well, no, I'm just saying <laughs> that's the thing that... Well, this is about what you wrote. I, that's the thing that attracts me to this idea. These these two pieces in particular is this... There, I did a thread not long ago on... I ran the numbers on homeownership, on mortgages, on... Uh, how much you were supposed to spend on housing. You know, it used to be common knowledge, the, the accepted sort of knowledge that you weren't supposed to spend more than 30% of your take-home pay on housing. That was just the, the rule, right? That, that, that was the economic rule. You don't, and that's what you told people who were graduating from college in 1999. You don't spend more than 30% of your income on housing. Well, the, the average that people spend on housing broke 31% a couple of years ago. Like this is the, that's the average. That means half of people are spending more. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so this, the, this, this period of liminality, right? What the, what this show calls the end times is a, a kind of a, a, all the old rules are breaking down and it's, it's very much, and this is why I, I, I'm happy that we got this. Cause it's very much what we're, what we've been talking about this entire time. All of the old rules are breaking down. Now you're going to spend whatever you need to spend on housing. 30% rule is gone. Those are, these are rules, these economic rules that we're used to. Um, these are rules for a bygone era. They helped your grandparents. Great. But they're not for you. Um, if you're, you know, 20 to 27, 28, trying to get established, these aren't rules for you. These are, those were for your grandparents. And the economy they grew up in, and the world they grew up in, and the culture they grew up in. Um, we're in a period now where all of that has been broken down. And nobody really knows what they're going to do to replace it. <laughs> nope. That's the, that's the nope. part that fascinates me, is nobody knows what they're going to do in the meantime. And that, but, but in any case, to, just to put a practical edge on this idea of liminality, that was exactly... Exactly why I why I liked these pieces when 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 Ace showed them to me. Uh, that, that's what I liked about them so much is they perfectly describe the times. What they they describe perfectly what's happening now. The old rules are, are gone, mm-hmm. and people are scrambling to try and put them back. But I don't think that's going to oh. work. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, like at the end of the day, I, you know, it's 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 going to be something that we're all participants in, but no one will be happy. An overarching um no one will be de- will be determining what the new mode is right it's going to be a right. collective right. reaction of of different you know i some bad way to look at it but like you could think of it would be like the whole hegelian you know synthesis but it said no i think it's it, there, there's going to be problem we're dealing with a bunch of different problems that there are going to be solutions towards those solutions after the fact will be well that of what was successful or kind of bundled together so as to be useful for the next process and you know i think that's that's been what's kind of turned me towards i guess i wouldn't say reformist but more of a active participant in electoral at least semi-electoral politics because i think that there are enough i think that there are moments or at least points of activism that are valid to pursue that will have enough ongoing effect as to be useful and to steer us in a direction that is not overly tyrannical, which is my biggest concern. 
Right. Right. Yeah. That's, you know, that's always the fear is that we, as we've talked about multiple times on this episode, that some charismatic sociopath is going to take a hold and say, well, you know, we'll, I'll save you that type of shit. Uh, or, you know, uh, just grasp onto something like that. Well, it's uh, one of the reasons the I've been very happy to see the response that AOC has gotten in, in some of her, like when she's got out in public, uh, even at her own events and stuff, people are starting to hate her uh, because she went oh, native yeah. in DC. <laughs> um, <clears throat> she, she absolutely went native. But that was the, but that, that to me is my, my general desire at any time there's an election, just, just like the midterms just now, my desire is for gridlock. My right. desire mm-hmm. is I want these people locked up and unable to do anything while the rest of us figure this shit out. <laughs> like, like um, the, 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 the human actually... beings that aren't politicians can figure this stuff out. We don't, I would like these people to not be making laws, please. Like that would be really <laughs> nice. <laughs> That actually no, and I get that. Like, I, oh, 100%. No, you go, Ace. You go. Okay. <laughs> I, no, I was going to say, um, I'm going to uh, like diverge a little tiny bit, but it's going to kind of be on topic. Um, so when I was reading your piece, it actually struck me, uh, something struck me, a similarity. Um, so I'm a huge Camus simp. Um, any, uh, Albert Camus. Um, and Camus has this thing, right, where he, when he's talking about the absurd, because he's a philosopher of the absurd, and he's talking about like, how people go through their daily rituals, right? This is kind of like their structure. Um, and, every, and every once in a while, on a street corner, let's say, uh, people come face to face with the absurd, right? And the absurd is, is, for a very short rundown, the absurd is the idea that uh, we are creatures of meaning, we, we seek out meaning, and we live in a world that seemingly, at least, is uh, devoid of any like meaning and, and this interaction together. Uh, creates the absurd and that really reminded me of like the, of liminality someone entering a liminal space uh metaphorically uh which mm-hmm. is coming face to face with the absurd and and Camus is, at the end obviously says yeah well the only way you can't really escape the absurd but you can be happy in it sort of way um so I was kind of wondering like what you Hunter what you would say is like how when you're in the liminal space what do you prescribe how people should react to that? Or how would you want people to kind of react? Or you personally. Or you personally, yeah. You know, I think... So I kind of, in a certain way, that's that's a fair question, especially because I moved from North Carolina to Los Angeles um, (laughs) the July before last, before this last one. So kind of been like this, especially with the pandemic, I was in this like, uh middle space of you know i'm not really in north carolina anymore i'm not and i'm Mm -hmm. I'm over in california but i don't know if i would consider myself californian i mean that sounds i used to make jokes which i said if you ever heard i had moved to california or somewhere a city in california i'm likely dead or otherwise (laughs) incapacitated (laughs) so it's been like a process of me like set of like trying to settle down but i think um i think that part of it is when you're in in the liminal space, I think, is that, you know, you have to witness that there is this immense space for freedom of figuring oneself out. Right. I think that, you know, the task for us in modernity or post-modernity, whatever you want to call it, I think the task for us is to, like, really try and figure out internally and externally where our valuations are coming from. Mm-hmm. Is it our own? Is it, or is it being something that's told? 
culture as it being someone that's given us from outside. And if it is something right. from, from given that's given to us from outside, that doesn't mean it's necessarily bad or outside of our nature, right. but one that we have to like understand balance is it because i'm being told outside right. by someone else right. or is it because i'm still internally valuing uh emerson i've actually gotten into reading a lot of emerson found out mm. that he is her favorite person for nietzsche to read nietzsche like loved reading ralph waldo emerson apparently. <laughs> <laughs> i find this like he's like, i just received he wrote a letter saying i just received the newest books of emerson and i'm quite delighted by this i'm like nietzsche was delighted by anything this is <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know that's 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 kind of the point with the self-reliance it's kind of discerning internally and so i think that in in when it comes down to pursuing you know like if you're in this liminal state of of being thrown this kind of you know heideggerian thrownness too i think it's about finding your a ground you take for this is how everything always shall be but instead being like this is where i'm at now where am I at now? What are the what is the ground, the parameters in my field of action, of desire, of what I what I want to be versus where I am now, of where I have been, and really trying to. I think there's this need to really assert like in oneself what you want and also what you don't want, and that takes time. You know, it takes it means experimenting, going out to like you know, for me it meant going to a sex party engine that uh you know 20 miles away from me one time and seeing how i like that other right. times it's you know um taking on a job the first job that was offered to me that happened to be with a company that i don't think is in the black market but could totally be in the black market <laughs> a lot of languages that i do not know that i do not speak and i am assuming <laughs> is, is totally legal most of the time <laughs> um but yeah, i was kind of figuring that you know once again I, you know there's the true you know if this is much the destination and kind of figuring out, you know, the narrative that you want to give your life mm -hmm. in concert with the narratives and stories that you think give your life meaning, right? Because we're all kind of like, there's this back and forth that goes on with like the stories that we think of who we're like related to, be it you know, our family or right. our heroes. And there's a back and forth in trying to figuring out, you know, where do we play in all that? You can't copy them. But you got to like right. find a way in which you give life to them and yourself at the same time. Right. I know that's really convoluted to say, but. Oh, no. Yeah, that, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's an yeah. excellent answer. Because it's very much in that same way where it's like the old rules are dead. I mean, you, that means to me, and maybe I'm just fucking Pollyanna about everything, but that means to me that there's opportunity. That means to me oh, that yeah. it's like that you can, that there's, there's no fucking rules, man. What, what, you, you can do whatever you want. You can, you can set yourself up in a lot of different ways to, to go a lot of different directions. Just pick one, go. Mm -hmm. I, that's, there's value in that. And it's, yeah. it's interesting to think about culture as a, as a liminal space or, or, or where we are now in that sense. Because you're right, if you compare it to something like, if you compare it to something like the post-war era, post-World War II in the United States, there's always been some level of subculture and, and reactive culture, but the culture is a locked thing in those times. Mm -hmm. we, we think of the, the culture of post-war America is a thing. Even in, in kind of no matter where you are, it might be different in Appalachia versus in, you know, New York. 
but it's a thing. And that's kind of gone now. That's just gone now. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I like it as a, I kind of felt a little bit of kinship with the trickster character, actually reading your piece because it's the Mm -hmm. kind of thing where I, I like the feeling of, of being free to make moves the way that I want to make them and not feeling bound by rules that very clearly, even mathematically just don't apply anymore. Um, it's it's a I think it's a great answer. I think it's a great way to look at it as a as an opportunity, as a place, as yeah. a as a free sort of area. And also, you know, because we we've said before, like you know, uh, people like to orient their lives around structure, right? They had there's some some type of structuring mechanism, uh, you know, wh- whatever that be to like kind of ground them, right? But it, it also seems to me that the limit having liminality. Um, also can strengthen that because it seems to me that there's more meaning in structure that you you choose from your own values as opposed to like a, th- a structure just being imposed on you from birth and this is just this is just what I do and who I am because this is what I was told I was and you know yada 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 uh, you know it seems much more meaningful having that choice um, in the first place. A hundred percent. I'm actually I'm actually writing it. I'm editing an essay in response to someone right now um, because they make an argument for transcendent objective standards for morality and mm-hmm. why marriage is better than being single and polyamorous. And my, and my general point, I think, that I came away from it, I wasn't even thinking about, thinking about it until I was writing it out, is when when you have these objective standards, if you say, if society says, oh, you know, married with 2.5 kids is the standard, well... <laughs> It, then, then choice doesn't matter. Like individual choice doesn't right. matter if there's a right choice, because if there's a right choice or an objectively good choice, then you're forked. You have a fork of the right choice or the wrong choice, and it doesn't matter if it's individual. Right. If you made the choice, t- in fact, if you if, tell if, me that I'm bad faith, right? If you tell me I'm a bad person, I'm going to hell for eating chocolate ice cream versus vanilla ice cream. It's like, well, okay, I yeah, I have a choice, sure, but obviously it's not, you know, it's not as mm-hmm. much of a choice. It's so. not a free choice in the same way that yeah. we that we imagine. It's almost like trying right. to rebuild reli- uh, the religious concept of determinism in the face of free will. It's like it's it's mm-hmm. it's like trying to rebuild that idea um, in a way that. In a, in a very broad sense, just doesn't work. <laughs> yes, yes, very much so. It is. It bothers. It's it bothers me anyway when people try to. Uh. Look, I've said it before. I'm one of the most conservative guys I know. My personal life, the way that I live, the things that I want. It's it's all fucking picket fits, two point five kids shit. Like it's all that. You know what I mean? Hey, I, that's um, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with the exception, maybe of not being in the burbs. I want to be away from people. But um, <laughs> but but outside of that, I'll like, but it's one of those things where I'm not. I, I I I don't see the value in saying that that should be what you want to. I I don't I don't exactly. know why that's valuable. How is that any? How is that worthwhile to say? Or to determine. Yeah. Well, because I think usually people have insecurity about what they say they want. And therefore, if you don't, if they don't enforce right. you to have to like agree with them, that that's the ideal, then suddenly they're like, wait, what, what about maybe? Yeah, they have wrong? to be validated. Their, their ideas have to be validated by forcing yeah, everyone. The social else. gaze. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The social gaze they're concerned because if it's not, if it's not saying they're all right, then like maybe they are wrong. Maybe, maybe they, maybe they don't want to be married. Maybe they, you know. Uh, 
but it's interesting that that idea too of like validation that's that's one of those things that ugh. but i understand we need it as people but we don't need to give it so readily <laughs> also, you, you know what I mean? To, like force it's people mm-hmm. to like you know live by your standard in order, right? To, like, because that's all it is. Is if, a hun- if, it's, if it's a hunger for that kind of validation, it's like maybe we need to be able to be okay with not being validated by everything all the time. Like maybe that's something we're okay with. You know, as people, we can be we can be comfortable enough to to have people say, "Well, you're a fucking idiot," and it's like, okay, I, I guess I'm a fucking idiot. I'm still doing me. <laughs> like I'm not bothered. Right. <laughs> yeah no i know it'd be it'd be great we just need to get to the that was that was the whole point of the essays trying to figure it out and now it's like okay it's a couple hundred in the, in the making but yeah. i feel like i'm starting to get an idea of what's needed about the issues at least <laughs> well i really like the pieces um they will be yeah. absolutely will be linked in the notes below uh yeah, because people right. should go read them they are incredible um what order would you prefer people read them in the order they were published uh yeah i mean if, if the the theory of the interregnum i think is probably the easier one to get into just because then it's like oh here's this here's why liminality is important right because i yeah but um i but i haven't thinking I, i'm gonna probably um in the next month be trying to put together the deluse and liminality at least a basic essay Ooh. on that, because I yeah, think that be- that's that's that those two. I think when you combine them, are going to give a lot more of uh, locomotion that I mm-hmm. think is happening inside of the the basic idea, the model of the interregnum. And of course, I want to emphasize in all this, I'm a postmodernist, so I'm the theory of the interregnum could be entirely bullshit. It's just <laughs> to it's to help people try and think about like our society. And if it makes you think that I'm that I'm full of shit and I'm totally wrong, by all means, do right. it. But um, yeah, it, it's a map, right? Yeah, like it, exactly. It, it could be wrong. It could not, it, like it might not line up exactly a hundred percent one to one with reality. But it's a good thing to like kind of you know uh, look at. I think so. At least to start off with, right? it's, yeah. it's it's describing, and I think this is what I sent to Ace. It's describing a method of analysis for the times. It's it's a it's it, like you said, it doesn't have to be a hundred percent right necessarily, but I happen to think that it, that it's probably more right than wrong just because the the yeah. way it's been describing it, it, the, or the way that you've been describing this is very much in line with exactly what I've been thinking and feeling with regard to the, the, the times, the current era and trying to explain it to people is is one of the hardest parts and i think you've done a really good job here <laughs> yeah yeah i really appreciate that truly i really do appreciate that well it's absolutely wonderful work and uh where can people i i think that's the show we've been going for almost three hours now <laughs> yeah do you have anything uh, else you want to uh, yes anything you'd like to add to say before we end Oh no! I mean, I, this this has been really wonderful, guys. Getting talked about you guys here, and I'm sorry when I've if I've trailed off. Uh, me no, 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 no. too long on certain subjects, but it's truly a pleasure. You guys have a, an amazing show here. Um, it's been wonderful speaking with you guys, and I don't have anything else to show because I've. Honestly, I get anxious about writing anything, so I'm slowly trying to get better at that. So check out my Substack and my Twitter, but that's that's all from my end. Give us Twitter, that, uh, yeah, give us that Twitter handle again. 
yeah, so with... Twitter handle is going to be imminent anarchy. So it's got because it's playoff at Deleuze, it is <laughs> at I M M A N E N T the word anarchy. All lowercase, all one word. That's me. Excellent. You uh, it's the same thing. Imminent anarchy. It's one word yep. at, uh, on stack. Now, Excellent. I'm, I'm trying to get to like posting more on there more consistently. It's just... Same, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ace has been working on something for a while now. <laughs> Yeah. Well, because, you, because you always get anxious. I always get anxious. I'm like, after I've written the first thing, I'm like, well, wait, there are so yeah. many different ways they could say I'm wrong. Let me go study every little piece that I'm worried about, and then yeah. I'll be ready in like a year later. Or I'll write something and I'll think, oh, wait, that's them. I could have explained it so much easier if I just explained it like this, and I rewrite like a two pair, three paragraphs and go mm-hmm. back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and that's when Infinite. i'm not in like a brain fog and just like yeah yeah maybe if you drank water yeah. or slept yeah well let's not get too far let's not ask too yeah, much here yeah it's, it's like cool our jets here a little bit no but hunter thank you so much for coming on the show this yes absolutely likewise and thank you guys so much it's been a true pleasure Oh, the pleasure was all ours. Thanks, yeah. Thanks, man. All right, Ace. Let's do your plugs now, sir. Uh yeah. Uh, just Ace underscore Argus on Twitter, and my Substack is uh, aceargus.substack.com. That's it. And my buddy pacing Joska on Twitter, J O U S K A. He's definitely not me. Um, because <laughs> I am I'm sussed. Actually, I'm thinking about appealing it. Because uh, Daddy yeah. Musk, I guess, has been giving back people's yeah. accounts. So I'm thinking about appealing it and then... Yeah, you might as well try. Yeah, I, I don't want to go back to it, though. I think I would just uh, appeal sure. it and then kick, uh, pull all the data down so I have it in a searchable PDF and then just close the account. Because I like pacing Joska more. He's cooler. Um, I, feel, I feel so bad because there's been so many people who've been banned, but they've been banned in my threads, arguing with people. Like some kind of incidental responsibility for this. Like, do you know how many people who've been banned who were mutuals of mine that were banned in my threads? It is more. It is more than the fingers on my hands. These people uh, are enraging. These people you find. <laughs> Really giving the incentives to join you in on your fights online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really join, you want to join in, in on the yeah, join in on the fights, and you can be free of Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> but Ace will remain. As... Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for listening. Later, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End Times Continue. For links and other information, come see us at TETC.show.